Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alexander Jerry. This week, we are wrapping up our three-part series focusing on the issues we've been covering the most lately, global warming, racism, and misogyny. On Patreon this week, we shared our February 2007 interview with the late, great historian Chalmers Johnson, whose trilogy on U.S. power, Blowback, Sorrows of Empire, and Nemesis, may be the very best three books ever to be written on U.S. hegemony. Next week on Patreon, subscribers will have exclusive access to the live stream of our first show back from break. We'll be streaming live for two hours on both Wednesday, August 21st and Thursday, August 22nd at 7 p.m. Chicago time from our new studios above Carrie's. But you can only hear that on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. The broadcast premiere of that pre-recorded show will then be aired next Saturday, August 24th. The reason we're pre-recording the show is because I want to be good and rested as that evening I will be on stage at Lincoln Hall as part of the Michael Brooks Show, which is making a tour stop here in Chicago. I hope you all can join us on Saturday, August 24th at Lincoln Hall, as I will be appearing again on the Michael Brooks Show. We've learned a lot on This Is Hell so far this year, and it's time we do an inventory of exactly what has been revealed to us on the show so far in 2019. This year, we started by telling you about the Trump administration's hate-filled plan to combat global warming by enclosing the U.S. in walls, and if giving a big middle finger to global warming refugees seeking safety isn't cruel enough, then... We talked about Hungary's new slave law, not that you'll hear about either in the corporate media, and that's because whiteness does its best to blind us from much of the world's hate, as we also discovered this year. Another couple things we did that big media won't are talk about sex work with actual sex workers and introduce you to the newest, latest, most successful and confrontational campaign against global warming that is Extinction Rebellion. We revealed how the crisis Trump is creating can be an opening for activists to challenge Trumpism. We questioned the Trump administration recognizing an unelected leader as the new president of Venezuela while the rest of the U.S. media was cheering him on. We discussed farm worker justice here in the States and we were told if we start grieving now for our doomed planet, we may actually be able to fight global warming. We had a guest arguing that we're headed for a more brutal, authoritarian, unequal capitalism. That is, if the left doesn't come up with some sort of alternative and fast. We talked about what the yellow vests actually stand for, and they're not against fighting global warming like the media tells us. Our correspondent in Puerto Rico told us about Hamilton's controversial performance in Puerto Rico. We found out how our faith in technology is, well, racist, and we discovered everything you ever wanted to ask about robot sex. We reported how the U.S. is supporting anti-democracy liberals against Chinese-backed pro-democracy nationalists in a key geopolitical location. A past guest got an online spat with that tool, Steven Pinker, who argues everything's always getting better, so why change a thing, which is completely misguided. We found out that we have a lot more access to a lot more money than we're being told, so yes, we can afford the Green New Deal. We were also made aware that uh, Britain's ruling liberal elite abandoned the class war, which led to Brexit, and we read love poems to incarcerated black women throughout history. We covered wars the U.S. media is ignoring despite the U.S. fighting in those wars. We were apprised on what happens when nobody pays taxes. We tried to get a grip on what democracy really is, and we're clued in on the amazing power of dock workers. We also conversed with guests who woke us up to the in 
inescapable atrocity of violence that will lead to our eventual and inevitable annihilation, how black antebellum abolitionist activism's use of violence led to the Civil War and the end of slavery, that just like the Soviet Union, Walmart runs on an undemocratic planned economic model, and what cookbooks tell us about the uh, time they were written, about the female identity, about capitalism, about manipulation, and how that all created real bad food here in the U.S. On This Is Hell this year, we got a heads up on how we can create political power with pleasure by making justice and liberation actually feel good. That's right. Activism can be stimulating, even erotic. That schools are undemocratic, teach us nothing but subordination, reinforcing our oppressive and unequal education system. How the left of the global north is inadvertently giving cover for the West's punishing sanctions and the coup to overthrow the elected government of Venezuela. And what happens when the United States stops seeing a limitless frontier to spread freedom and now only sees walls that we've built to limit freedom. We even described what democratic socialism is. We figured out why every nation, no matter how poor, repays their taxes, even to be even to the detriment of their citizens, even when their citizens vote to not repay those debts. We had a report on Native Americans who are protesting Trump's wall, which slices through their land and threatens sacred burial sites. We met a couple of members of Chicago Youth Climate Strike who went on strike and didn't attend class, instead having a rally downtown in Grant Park against global warming. And we talked Chilean, yes, Chilean feminism. We covered anti-Semitism in a way it's not covered anywhere else, and that would be honestly. We described the daily fight people of color engage in against white supremacy, and we looked at police violence with an attorney who has dedicated his life to stopping racist police violence. It turns out Michigan is the new front lines in the fight against tar sand pipelines. The U.S. Christian far right that's connected to President Trump is funding the rise of Europe's far right. There's a new feminist manifesto for the 99%. A past guest got out of prison and was put under house arrest in Turkey. We had reparations spelled out for us and what they reveal about presidential hopefuls and their policies on race. We were briefed on Chicago electing its first black woman lesbian mayor in city history and a guest lit into Paul Krugman and liberals who get everything wrong about Appalachia and the rest of rural America. And another laid out, another guest laid out how Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte's death squads now have mass surveillance capabilities thanks to your friends at IBM. Sadly, we were tipped off to the most influential Democratic Party-aligned think tank supporting right-wing ultranationalists in Israel. We we're also facing near-term climate-induced societal collapse, and conspiracy theorists have gone from being fringe nutters to walking the halls of power in the U.S. Thankfully, we had explained to us that Sudan's protests, which overthrew their autocratic leader, were about a lot more than rising bread prices, despite what the news would have you believe. Sure, police violence is bad here in the States, but it's possibly worse in Puerto Rico. Not that you'll hear it or read it in any media reports on the opioid crisis, despite the hundreds of on-air minutes and thousands of print inches it has attracted. But the whole epidemic was caused by racism. And it's not online disruption that's shutting retail stores down and putting people out of work. It's private equity, which profits from those closures. We also had eco-socialism explained to us, as well as our new world disorder of no-go zones that increase risk and danger for us all. The U.S. Census has a long history of enforcing racism that dates back to its very beginning, long before President Trump's proposed citizenship pro question. 
So, yes, Trump is horrible, but Joe Biden is awful and has his own record of racism, too. The forever war the U.S. has been waging nearly this entire century is about to be put on autopilot, which is scary as hell. We heard how the white left has misunderstood black political life for way too long. We considered the taboo topics of American exceptionalism and American innocence and heard the history of why we are a red meat republic. The Boeing 737 MAX keeps crashing because Boeing embodies all of the worst aspects of 21st century capitalism and the corrupt military industrial complex. So... We need social transformation via socialism now. The attention economy connects us with smartphones to social media while disconnecting us from reality. Fighting climate change with new technology as an inherent problem. That new tech will need climate change causing resources. Flooding is devastating America's heartland and threatening our food supply. We contemplated the worst crime of all rape. We revealed that mobility and a sense of place are cornerstones of institutional racism. We had reports on Brazil that were not filled with U.S. propaganda. We learned about the unfulfilled promise of abolition that was made to former slaves and their descendants following the end of the Civil War. And we got a better understanding of U.S.-Japanese relations through the lens of sexual violence and murder committed by U.S. service members and military-based workers. Abolitionist socialist feminism was also explained to us. We found out that the cruel pain painful and degrading use of force feeding in U.S. prisons is unprecedented in the world. U.S. media coverage of Venezuela is shockingly, or maybe not so shockingly, misleading to the point that it's actually filled with lies. Stonewall has been de-radicalized, which sucks. We found out what being a chav in Britain is really all about. And we've known about global warming for 40 years, and all the world's governments have given us is empty promises, which for far too many of us is good enough. Then, on your suggestion, we chewed over full surrogacy now and the end of the family, as well as gender abolition. We analyzed the logical fallacies of the logic bros on the far right. We studied the booming and brutal business of trailer parks, and a guest taught us all about last year's teacher strikes and its radical militancy. We got a history of climate change, which explains why fossil fuel consumption keeps increasing. We realize neoliberal fascism has taken hold in the U.S. The Cold War divided African-Americans from Africans in the fight against apartheid and how the fight over one neighborhood's future created a present-day Chicago that has rampant racial and economic segregation. We got a live report on the protests in Hong Kong. We had a people's history of the Portuguese Portuguese. Carnation Revolution of 1974-1975, we gave air to the fight between advocates for public land and those who want to privatize them in order to be sold off or have their resources exploited, and we were shown the fugitivity of blackness. We got another report from our man in San Juan on the latest wave of protests who hit Puerto Rico. We deliberated financialization and how social media platforms are incentivizing racial segregation. We got caught up on the war against war and how capitalist globalization has made the public private and the private public public is harder to say than you'd think. And when you consider everything we've touched on so far in 2019, there can be no doubt. This is hell. I hope to see all of you Saturday, August 24th, when I will be appearing on the Michael Brooks Show, which is currently touring and will be making a stop here in Chicago at Lincoln Hall. Again, that's Saturday, August 24th, Lincoln Hall, Michael Brooks Show. I'm a guest. Okay, Alex, tell the listeners who's on this week's show. Uh, this week, Toward Feminism, a collection of recent interviews on different visions of feminism and how we might get there. 
Laura Carlson reports on the first international gathering of politics, art, sport, and culture for women in struggle, live from Zapatista territory. Historian Ashley Farmer examines the radical work of women in the Black Power movement. Organizer Bree Busk explores the rise of multi-sectoral transversal feminism in Chile. Theorist Sophie Lewis explores the radical horizon of gestational politics. Zila Eisenstein explains why the mounting crises we face of capitalism, racism, misogyny cannot be reformed individually, but fought collectively. And first, writer Jessica Crispin rejects today's mainstream neoliberal feminism. All right, let's go. This is hell. Our next guest is not a feminist. That is, not in the way that feminism has been bought, commodified, marketed, branded, and rebranded, so it doesn't even look or sound like feminism anymore. Instead, she offers a manifesto for a real revolution. Here to tell us why she's not a feminist, Jessa Crispin is author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jessa. Thank you for having me. This is a fantastic book. I really, really appreciate this opportunity to have you on our show. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. How would you define feminism? Because you ask, are you a feminist? Do you believe women are human beings and deserve to be treated as such? That women deserve all the same rights and liberties bestowed upon men? If so, then you are a feminist, or so all the feminists keep insisting. And you call this the simplicity and obviousness of the dictionary definition of feminism. So is feminism, how would you define feminism? And is it the idea that everybody deserves the same rights and liberties? Yeah, it's, it's my my version of feminism is that there's no one human life that holds more value than any other, and that's a very kind of um, modern day feminism would say yes, that's exactly what we're saying. Except the way that modern feminism behaves itself, uh, the goals of modern day feminism act in conflict with that. Um, and in, in the way that feminism has been used as an excuse, uh, for say the invasion of Afghanistan in the way that contemporary feminism, um, is mostly about, uh, you know, entering corporate culture, entering, um, the corrupt system of government as, as it currently exists rather than it reforming, um, society as a way of, uh, as a way of valuing all human life, as a way of removing hierarchies of power. You know what? When I was reading your book, I couldn't uh, help but think of that new statue, Fearless Girl, which is in front of the Charging Bull statue <laughs> on Wall Street. There was an opinion piece in the New York Times by Genia Belafonte, where she argues that the point of Fearless Girl was to advertise an initiative pushing companies to include more women on their uh, boards. Uh, is the root of this effort, she writes, an organic wish to buoy the ambitions of confident little girls in high tops, not particularly as the investment firm State Street Global Advisors, which commissioned the statute clearly states in marketing materials, research shows that companies with greater levels of gender diversity have had stronger financial performance and fewer governance-related issues such as bribery, corruption, shareholder uh, battles, and fraud. So do you see uh, good or bad feminism, real or false feminism in the fearless girl statue, or somewhere in between? Oh, well, it's obviously a joke. Um why is it why is it a girl? <laughs> why is it not a woman? Um what what 
what's the symbolic imagery of a little of a little white girl? Um, what are the values that we project onto girlhood? Um, all of these are worthy conversations, but in, in reality, this is an advertisement for for a, cor- a corporate culture, and the idea that women are somehow more uh, nurturing, more empathetic, more compassionate, less corrupt in an inherent way that when if women are bestowed with power that they will somehow um, express it in a more benevolent way rather than engaging in the shenanigans that Wall Street and Silicon Valley and all these sort of very problematic um, industries do that are currently ruled by men. This is this is a myth. It's it's silly. It's beneath us. The idea that a, a small girl tames the wild beast is is absurd. But it's a theme that it's a story that we keep, you know, Beauty and the Beast. This came out it's a it's a Logan has the same storyline. It's a ridiculous thing that we need to really examine. So what does it say to you about the news media then when they put so much focus on that statue during the women's strike? That was, I believe I saw it on every one of the major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and then the cable news uh, networks as well, MSNBC, Fox, CNBC, CNN. I saw them all on the International Women's Strike Day showing that statue of the fierce girls. So what does that say to you about the way in which the news media uh, it expresses or covers feminism today. It covers it like like children. It, it, it's a very simplistic way of of looking at the world. A very simplistic way of dealing with gender, which is the way that mainstream media has always dealt with women. You know, there's a reason why up until only you know about ten years ago, the the best role a woman could get in Hollywood was as you know a wife or a mother. Um, or mistress or a prostitute, uh, we don't have a complex conversation around um, women or gender in in general in this country, and particularly in the mainstream media. We are a very uh, sentimental country when it comes to women, and this definitely plays out in these narratives and in the way that women are portrayed. In, in, in entertainment, in, in the media, in, in these conversations, uh, we don't like to have a sophisticated conversation about women. In May of last year, we spoke with Andy Zeisler, author of We Were Feminists Once, and she talked about this kind of feminism, the kind of feminism that she opposed, which she called pop feminism, feel-good feminism, and white feminism. Andy adds, I call it marketplace feminism. It's decontextualized, it's depoliticized, and it's uh, probably feminism's most popular iteration ever. So is the kind of feminism you oppose, the sellable, as Andy describes it, kind of feminism we see in pop culture, the commodified feminism that is decontextualized? Right. Um, I mean, she ran Bitch Magazine for a long time, which I read when I was, um, you know, in in college and and coming out of it. Uh, So she was definitely... um, her projects have always been kind of uh, in alignment with my own. There are different there are different sections of feminism that are um, that the book that my book deals with, and definitely commodified feminism 
is one of them. Another is lean in corporate culture feminism, um, political feminism, you know, the, the sort of unquestioned widespread support that Hillary Clinton got in the primaries um, from the kind of feminist leaders from Gloria Steinem in, in the second wave to third wave feminists like uh, Jessica Valenti and so on. Um, and then there's outrage feminism, which is a much more of an internet phenomenon. So it's uh, mine is a little, my book is a little more scattered than Andy's, um, I'm afraid. But um, but there are different um, subsections of feminism that are that share a kind of uh, a, a problem or a a difficulty in the foundations of. of of contemporary feminism, an idea that they all share, um, which I think is is wrong and and problematic. Uh, you mentioned Hillary Clinton. We did a series of interviews with people who were contributors to Liza Featherstone's uh, book, The Faux Feminism of Hillary Clinton. And so uh, you write that one thing, the patriarchal uh, system under which we live definitely wants you to believe is that you are on your own. Independence and freedom are what you wanted, right? So independent, you swing toward fragility and loneliness. So free, you exist in a blank space with no guideposts or reference points. Feminism can and should be an alternative to this isolation. It should be a way of creating alternatives to the way we live. Now, we're told that when it comes to capitalism, especially the neoliberal brand of capitalism, we're told by Margaret Thatcher that there is no alternative. Recently, Democratic minority leader in Congress, uh, Nancy Pelosi, said in a response to a question at a CNN town hall about having a more stark contrast in economic policies from the right, she said, we're capitalist and that's the way it is. So how much should or how much can feminism be a challenge to the economic system and in terms of economics offer an alternative to the way that we live? Well, feminism needs to start talking about what its values are and how those values differ from the values of the wider culture. And we're uncomfortable with the word values because, I don't know, it's, it's somehow vaguely religious or something or, or moralistic. It, people don't People don't like having this conversation of what is it that you actually, what is it that you actually value? Because when you look at contemporary feminism, it has been corrupted by this neoliberal worldview, where what you value, even if you tell yourself, even if you tell yourself that I'm a feminist and so I value community and I value compassion and so on. If you're living your life in this sense of you're only concerned with your own well-being, if your goals in life are simply to improve your own conditions, to make money, to advance yourself into a career in, say, the banking industries or the tech industries, um, or in any sort of corporate culture that is destroying uh, the environment, or using sweatshops in Bangladesh or whatever it is, then you are showing that you, those values are not actually your values. You don't value compassion if that's, if that's the way that you live your life. So, so if we do value something other than greed and other than money and power, which is what the, the contemporary society values most of all, then we need to actually start living by those values. 
And that means not participating in systems of oppression. So in that sense, is the problem with today's feminism that it has adapted to the ethos of neoliberalism, faith in private enterprise, ever-expanding commodification, bootstrap individualism? Is the problem feminism or what neoliberalism has done to feminism? Well, feminism used to be a way of critiquing society. It used to be outside of society as a way of criticizing it in in a way of progressing it, in in a way of creating uh, societal structural changes. Somehow, when it became... Um, once women were allowed to participate in society and were not marginalized from it in a wide, in a wide scale, uh, once the obstacles to education, uh, money, and so on were removed from the law books, then it beca- feminism became about um, not criticizing society so much as 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 a way of seeking greater participation in the society as it already exists. Because it's really easy to criticize corporate culture when you can't make your living in it. If you're outside the walls, then it's very easy to throw rocks at it. Once you're inside, once you actually have the opportunity to succeed, to also benefit from money and power, it's much more difficult to even want to criticize it. So you tell yourself these, these stories about, well, I know that I'm a good person. So it's okay if I'm working in, in the financial sector uh, because I'm going to improve the financial sector just by virtue of being a good person. Not understanding that that's not how, that's not how reform happens. That's not how structural changes happen. So the neoliberal worldview is is the world that we're all now living under and participating in. Um, But feminism used to be a way of looking at society rather than um, being just a part of it, being propping it up, uh, helping it to exist. Is today's feminism one that has made concessions, one that is, in a sense, liberal, even too liberal, a feminism that is not contentious, but concessionary? Well, feminism today is almost meaningless as as a word, because it's been co-opted by all these different groups in a very um, um, self-congratulatory kind of way, and in a unquestioned kind of way. So now you have um, you know, it used to be that mainstream culture were terrified of feminists. You know, religious leaders used to blame hurricanes on feminists and queers. Um, you know, God, feminism made God so angry he had to, you know, blight the earth with a hurricane or an earthquake or something. Um, but now it's, it's a word that's being used by, um, by Hillary Clinton, who is a neoliberal warmonger. It's being used by pop stars like Taylor Swift. It's being used by the pro-lifers now, for whatever reason. So the word feminism itself, I don't think, has any meaning anymore. So if I say, you know, that this this thing is, this is a feminist idea, or I am a feminist, or whatever, 
the the word has been so drained of meaning that whoever hears me say that um, can kind of project any sort of um, any sort of meaning on that word that they that they want to. You know, many people point to Trump's supporters and Republicans as being sexist and feminist. But when I was reading your book, I was thinking about the impact that the Democratic Party has had on feminism. What, ha- how much damage do you think the Democratic Party has done to feminism? I don't think... Um, I don't think that it's any, anybody's, any particular group's... <laughs> I mean, when we talk about, you know, when we talk about Trump and we talk about um, how Trump is against women and the fact that Trump was elected uh, says something about the misogyny in this country. In order to have that conversation, we need to forget that 29 million women voted for Donald Trump. Um, So are we going to say that these women are are misogynistic in some way? No, it's it's. Many of those women claimed to be feminists as they were voting for Donald Trump, said that voting for Donald Trump was somehow a feminist act. And as far as the Democrats go, um, this is a a situation where the Democrats use um, abortion and pro-choice words, the language, but they don't actually back it up with any action. So they use it to kind of rally the base. But then they constantly disappoint because as as they're sort of saying, well, I'm pro-choice and we'll protect Roe v. Wade from being overturned. You know, as they say that clinics that the clinic is closing across America, there are states that only have one abortion clinic left. And I think that this is a big problem with contemporary feminist rhetoric is that it isn't connected to the everyday reality of what it's like to be a woman in this country. So contemporary feminist rhetoric is, is deals with issues of self-empowerment, lip service to sort of pro-choice things and, and what's good for women, like the, you know, the closing the wage gap and so on. But how women actually live their lives and what's actually going to improve their lives has, is not part of the conversation at all. You write that radical change is scary, it's terrifying actually, and the feminism I support is a full-on revolution. Last week when we spoke with uh, the author and columnist Judith Levine, who in a recent article quoted the late, uh, artic- uh, late radical public intellectual Ellen Willis writing in 2005, for, the, for most of my politically conscious life, the idea of social transformation has been the great taboo of American politics. How much do you think the real goals of feminism, say the goals of the women's strikes, such as equal pay, paid parental and medical leave, universal uh, child care, universal health care, freedom from sexual abuse, deportation, racism, and violence. How much do you think those are taboo in U.S. politics? Is the social and political transformations at the heart of real feminism, feminism that you would support simply too scary for Americans? Right. I don't understand how after the failure yesterday of uh, the Republican health care bill, how the conversation did not immediately switch to single payer. I don't, I feel like the left in America, as it is a, um, a philosophy or political viewpoint, 
is much more radical than the politicians that are currently in power with the Democrats. You know, obviously they're very centrist, obviously they're very uh, conservative and ineffectual, or we wouldn't be living in the world that we live in. Um, and while the right has taken up the sort of extreme position, um, the Democrats have decided to counter that with, with taking a very centrist, reasonable, um, totally in a, unable to actually accomplish anything position. Um, so, yeah, the, the things that actually would improve the lives of women are somehow um, not part of the conversation at all. And that includes health care reform, subsidized child care. And these things aren't even part of the mainstream feminist conversation anymore, because the mainstream feminist conversation is about your, you know, fat acceptance and whether or not Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a feminist television show. You know, I read how many think pieces about that this week um, <laughs> that has been off the air for God knows how long. And I've read at least three think pieces this week alone about Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the most feminist thing that's ever happened. It's like, no, that's, that's, that's not actually how grown-ups think about politics and feminism. We are speaking with Jessica Crispin. She is author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto. Manifesto. Jessa is the editor and founder of the online magazine's Book Slut, one of America's very first uh, book blogs, and the literary journal Spolia. How much has feminism then diverted from the path of something we discussed last week with historian Marjorie Spruill about her uh, book, uh, Divided We... Uh, Divided We Stand, that is the 1977 International Women's Year Conference where they devised a plan of action that included ending discrimination in education and employment, opening up new opportunities to women in every field, including elective and a point of office, urge greater participation and recognition of women in the media, and an end to sexual stereotyping both in the media and in schools and a host of other demands. How much has feminism diverted from where it was in 1977 at that International Women's Year Conference? Well, to me, that's not the important part of second wave feminism. That, to me, is very much in line with how we look at whether or not feminism is succeeding today. You know, when when people do these sort of tallies of how how is feminist feminism doing? Well, we look at how many women are uh, the percentage of women that are CEOs of companies the percentage of women um, in the Senate, the percentage of women um, in in medical school or whatever. That is about participating in a society that is sick, that is uh, structured around oppression and exploitation. So that, to me, is not interesting. I'm more, much more interested in the radical thinkers of the second wave of uh, Shulamith Firestone, Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, um, Andrea Dworkin, these sorts of people who understood that the foundations of society are in oppression, that our society doesn't function without somebody being powerless and somebody being the powerful, and that we're just going to keep... So even if women somehow gain power, there's still going to be some demographic that is the powerless, the demographic that's going to be exploited and oppressed, because that's how our society functions. 
And so the only way to create true equality, not just for women, but for everyone, is to found our society in some other idea, in, into some other structure. So that, to me, is much more interesting and much more necessary than just sort of putting more women on the board of Facebook. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, uh, what does it say about the way in which feminism is seen today? Or when people say, you know, women are rising in power and they point to Margaret Thatcher, Hillary Clinton, Angela Merkel, Theresa May, Marine Le Pen. What does that, what should that reveal to us about the way in which feminism is branded or the way in which it's defined today? Right. Uh True equality will will never be achieved until it's a woman who drags us into a into a nuclear holocaust, right? I mean, it, it's this idea <laughs> that that women, uh, the powerful woman, um, of of true equality, and this idea that all we need is to get women in in a position of power and everything, and everything will suddenly magically be. Fine. It's such a fairy tale, and it, and it's such a. Uh, it's based on this idea that women are somehow more compassionate than men, but that is a lie that men told us in order to keep us at home taking care of the children. You know, you're so much better at it. You're more nurturing. You're more emotional. You know, you do that stuff, and I'll do the the, the hard work. You know, you, you'd be bored by it. You know, stay with the kids. So we've bought into this lie because it's convenient for us now. It used to be inconvenient. Now we have it working for us instead because now we don't have to question our motives because our motives are so obviously pure. Um, How could they possibly be anything but? So this is a ridiculous lie, and we need to actually start thinking about these things, which is why the promotion of Hillary Clinton as the feminist candidate was baffling to me. Like if If you actually... Just dismiss her gender and look at her record. She was terrible for women. Um, and the fact that you couldn't have that conversation during the primary season without being branded a traitor was absurd to me. I'm glad you mentioned that because you have you write that. Uh, let me get to this question. I have it right here. Uh, you write that uh, feminism is a method of shaming and silencing anyone who disagrees with you, inspired by a naive belief that disagreement of conflict is abuse. So I just want you to expand on that. How does feminism shame and silence those who may disagree with you? Well, there's there there's outrage culture, which is this idea. Uh, this phenomenon that happens mostly online, but uh, it happens in, in the real world too, where um, if you profess an unpopular opinion, if you use the wrong language, um, in the in the case of uh, Tim Hunt, Professor Tim Hunt, if you make a bad joke uh, that can be taken out of context, you lose your job. Um, in the case of, and Laura Kipnis has a, a book about this that's coming out next month uh, called Unwanted Advances about um, Title IX tribunals on college campuses. You know, she wrote an essay in a non-university publication, and she's a professor at Northwestern University, and she was brought up on 
hostile, creating a hostile uh, environment um, of a sexual nature and brought up on these sort of um, Title IX charges by her by some students, not even her students, but just other students, um, on the university campus, and almost lost her job because of it. And professors have lost their jobs because of these kinds of things. So, and it's done under the name of feminism. The, women, the girls and women that were protesting against Laura Kipnis were uh, part of the feminist organization on campus. And, you've, you know, you've seen throughout the years, um, women like Jermaine Greer have been uninvited from um, to speak on college campuses because her some of her language when she talks about trans issues have not been the words that are the preferred words at the moment. They're not the preferred opinion at the moment. Um, you see it happening right now with the Dave Chappelle comedy special. People are, are boycotting Netflix because they objected to a joke or two in in the Dave Chappelle um, comedy special about uh, about gays, and so it's this idea that if somebody has a different opinion than we do, that they need to feel consequences for that. They need to be fired. They need to lose their job. They need to be publicly humiliated. And it's not a conversation. It's a condemnation. So how much is today's feminism about avoiding arguments or deep discussions about the fight for equal rights for women or the acknowledgement of the lack of equal rights for women? Uh, How much is it about not feeling uncomfortable? Oh, it's almost entirely about not feeling uncomfortable. That's that's why contemporary feminism is so focused on the self, on uh, individual achievement, on improving your own conditions, on pursuing your own goals, using the language of self-empowerment, and um, which, by the way, is the 80s term that Reagan and Thatcherites used as a justification for taking away social welfare programs, that we need to make sure that people can be self-empowered and not rely on state welfare programs. Um, somehow we've we've taken this as as a good thing rather than understanding that it's about removing any sort of feelings of solidarity between gender or class. Um, but yeah, it, it's a when you focus so much on your own pursuits, on your own self, when you don't use feminism as a way of interrogating the culture that you live in and interrogating the way that you participate in that culture, then it just becomes this kind of feel-good mantra of, you know, everything you do is great because you're a feminist and it's super important for women for you to, you know, drink that smoothie and buy that T-shirt, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it, people don't like it when you question their choices anymore because it, it's not about... Um, it's not about which smoothie do you like. It's somehow that smoothie becomes an integral part of your identity. And so if you question that choice, you are questioning, questioning the legitimacy of your entire existence somehow, which is a bad road to go down. It's a, it's a silly way to start thinking. 
So to what degree can you consumer boycott or support businesses or sign petitions or vote in elections to change the world in the one that truly believes in, embraces, and actually implements equal rights for women? Well, I think you have to live your life with integrity and you have to figure out what you what what you value and then live your life in alignment with those values. And it is as simple and as blindingly complex as that. Um, because that's not a conversation that is encouraged, I think that um, we look at it on this very kind of surface level way of, you know, uh, should I get that pedicure? Is, is, what lifestyle choices should I make? That sort of stuff. Um, until you get down at the real root of your of your life and of your society and of your culture and your community and your family and all that stuff, like right down to the base of it, and you understand what it's rooted in and try to change that, then the surface level stuff doesn't doesn't necessarily make a big difference. You know, I, I've been on this book tour in Australia trying to talk about these issues and people would come to me with questions like, is it okay that I like the movie Love Actually? And I was like, I don't think you're... <laughs> I think it's <laughs> deeper than that question. I think it's deeper than, you know, well, what do I say to my boss if, you know, if, if he's sort of, you know trying to keep me from getting a raise or whatever. It's like, this, this is the wrong way to look at this situation. It, you have to look at the, the base motivation, not at just the, the, the symptoms, um, the sort of visible symptoms that are manifesting. So I, there was an article uh, by past guest on our show, Katha Powlett, at The Nation last week, headlined, Can a Feminist Be Pro-Life? Katha wrote the article in a response to, as she writes, in January, New Wave Feminists, an anti-choice organization, was briefly listed as a sponsor on the website for the Women's March on Washington. Katha cites Lauren Enriquez, a PR manager with the Anti-Choice Human Coalition, writing in a New York Times op-ed, headlined, How the New Feminist Res- Resistance leaves out American women, that the movement's radical position on abortion cannot unite American women. Katha writes that a, a, women's, a woman's constitutional right to decide for themselves when and if to become a mother is an essential part of feminism today. In your opinion, how much are abortion rights and a pro-choice stance at the very core of feminism? Without abortion rights, what is feminism? And do you see a trajectory in feminism that could lead to a feminism that is actually embracing of an anti-choice opinion. Well, look, I think it's, I think it's absolutely possible to be a feminist and to be philosophically and morally pro-choice or pro-life. I, I believe that you can um, believe that um, women hold as much value as men philosophically and also believe that abortion is a death. Once you start legislating that for other women, that is fundamentally not feminist because you are trying to control the lives and the choices and the belief system of other women. And that that's patriarchal. That's, there's no way to get around that. But that's a patriarchal um, method of control. 
So can somebody be pro-life and be feminist? Yes. Can they advocate for the end of abortion and be feminist? No, absolutely not. I think that abortion rights are overemphasized in the feminist conversation in the way that um, politicians use it as this issue to rally the base, but then don't actually do anything to improve access uh, to to abortion services or family planning services. They they don't necessarily do anything um, to make it more affordable to women. Um, so I think that it takes up a lot of space in the conversation, but doesn't take up a lot of space in the world. You know, I, I used to work at Planned Parenthood in Texas. Texas is a huge state. There are only a couple abortion providers in the state. Women often had to drive for hours to get abortions. Um, and then when, you know, when they got to the clinic, they were told there's a 24 or 36-hour waiting period after uh, meeting with the doctor. And so then they have to spend even more money to get a motel for the night or whatever. Like, it was a nightmare. But that was never part of the conversation. The, the conversation, the pro-choice conversation um, across the country was just, you know, well, we're not going to overturn. We're going to protect Roe v. Wade. Like, Roe v. Wade does not mean anything if women can't actually get abortions. So there's a huge disconnect between rhetoric and lived experience. And I think that people use abortion as a, um, as a litmus test, as a, as a kind of shibboleth, as, as these sort of rallying issues that, um, that don't back it up with actual real action. Well, let's talk about an aspect of the discussion that isn't happening, and you point out in your book that I find fascinating. Fascinating. You write, we need to define what it is we value, how we express that value, and what we ask society to value in us. Money is currently how we express value, particularly through our unconscious association between income and worth, as in if someone is financially struggling, they must not be producing anything of value. If someone is financially successful, they must be producing work of tremendous value. But also, if I am not being paid for my work, that work must not be valuable. How much do monetary, does monetary value undermine our values? How much does money undermine our principles, our standards of behavior, our judgment of what is important in life and what is right and wrong? Oh, 100%. <laughs> um, money is nothing except a corrupting force, right? It's, it's just... Um, you know, the, in the past sort of a uh, couple of years, I've been very interested in the women of the Catholic Church in, in the sense of the saints. Um, because 500 years ago, St. Teresa of Avila was writing about money, about how do we create a society that is not centered around money? How do we, uh, how do we, value a life through something other than the than expressing it with money um and so it's fascinating and and also completely disheartening to think that we've been dealing with this um it through uh through uh, women's philosophy for 500 years and, and we're still in the place that we are but the idea that i keep coming back to with the church and I'm not 
I'm not Catholic. I'm not even Christian. Um, but the thing that I think that I find so appealing was this idea in the, in the, in early Christianity, that if you became a member of the church, you gave up your property, right? Um, you, uh, you gave your, you bestowed your land and your money to the church. And the reason why you did that was because owning property meant that you had people subject to your will. And so you were um, uh, relinquishing that power that you held that you held over others, and that that was the first step to being a true Christian. Now, obviously, the church took that property and ran with it. Um, but the idea of that still has so much hold on my imagination of what that means. And I, you know, I, <laughs> as a writer. You're told a lot of stuff about how to make money, about how to brand yourself, about how to, uh, you know, create this kind of financial foundation for yourself. Um, but part of that is by giving up your ideals and compromising on your values and writing stuff that you don't believe in and, and so on and so forth in order to get published. And I absolutely refuse to do that which means I don't have any money. Um, but I'm, I'm fine with that because St. Teresa and I can have a nice chat and a bottle of wine about it, you know? Uh, as you can imagine, I am very much in the same financial state as you are with a radio show that has content like this. It doesn't really help. You really don't get a lot of corporate sponsorship when you're being very critical of capitalism and pointing out its flaws. Jessa, one last question for you. Jessa Crispin is author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto that I think everybody should be reading out there. Jessa is the editor and founder of the online magazine's Book Slut, which was one of America's very first book blogs, and the literary journal Spolia. How, uh, the last question that we have for all of our guests is the question from hell. We, uh, it's the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. How <laughs> anathema to what you see as good feminism, I guess, uh, and how, uh, how much damage was done to feminism by the idea and the branding and use of girl power? Well, it's the Buffy thing, right? It's the Buffy the Vampire Slayer thing. Um, that that kind of idea overtook feminism somehow, um, of being strong, being empowered, that sort of thing. And it, and it feels good. You know, it feels good to have power. It feels good to be strong. It feels good to um, profit off of our society. It feels good to make money, et cetera, et cetera. But those are the standards of success from patriarchal culture. The patriarchy values you for the money that you make, for the power that you wield. Um, and so feminism should have been the opposite of that. Of Let's not judge how well we're doing based on how much money we're making, but how much care we put into the world, how much compassion we are capable of developing. Um, so to me, the girl power thing, the, the, the Barbie doll version of feminism 
the very pretty corporate version of feminism, that's not feminism. That's patriarchy. It's the same thing, just now with a skirt on it. And we have to kind of understand that in order to be able to reject it and create something new and better. Yeah, I was just about to say that I was wondering how much is today's feminism about the worst aspects of the patriarchy, the worst aspects of men. Is that what today's feminism is really all about? Yeah, it's women behaving like men, women um, having the same goals as men and and having the same sort of um, definitions of what a good life is as men. But I feel like how low are our standards? You know, we should we should aspire to be a little bit better because we should understand intimately what it means to be on the other side of somebody uh, who operates in that way. Jessa, I cannot thank you enough for being on this week's show. This is a fantastic book. Jessa Crispin is author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. You're listening to This Is Hell. That was writer Jessa Crispin from March of 2017. Next up, Laura Carlson from March of 2018. This is hell. A women-only conference was hosted by the Zapatista last week, and as a man, therefore, I was not invited. But one of our correspondents was here to tell us what happened in Chiapas. Laura Carlson is director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy in Mexico City and advisor to Just Associates. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Laura. Thanks, Chuck. Always a pleasure. We are very, very proud to have Laura as our correspondent in Mexico. You can follow Laura on Twitter at Laura E. Carlson, and you can find out more about Laura's work at CIPAmericas.org. You wrote to us... One correction, Chuck. Yes, sir. We had to change our URL because of a hacking, and now it's just Americas.org, so it's easier. Wow. Americas.org was actually available? Congratulations to you. That's amazing. (laughs) Well, there was a group that had been doing solidarity work for decades, and they went under, as unfortunately so often happens, and so we actually received it as a gift. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. Uh, So you wrote to us saying you had just returned from the Zapatista women's gathering of thousands of women in the mountains of Chiapas, uh, no men allowed. Why were no men allowed, and what do you think got accomplished because no men were allowed? The idea was to create a space only for women, in the positive sense, not in the negative sense of excluding men. And so there's a big difference between separatism that seeks to to exclude men from public spaces and the right and the necessity of women to create their own spaces for a certain type of reflection and sharing, which is what happened in Chiapas. The result of having these kinds of spaces, or just very specifically, the result of this particular meeting is almost indescribable, even now, almost, you know, a week later. I think it was a very powerful experience for all of us who were there. But just to give uh, the basic picture to the listeners, you can imagine coming up, and the first thing you see is a huge banner that says, Welcome, Women of the World. And we're in a remote Zapatista community up in the mountains of Chiapas, a community that has almost, you know, very little resources. And they're hosting the arrival of some five to 7,000 women 
from all over the world. Then the next banner says, men prohibited and only women allowed to enter. And so we all got a, a kind of a, a chuckle out of it. And as we came in, we realized we were really in a different kind of a space. In the first place, I don't know if I'd been in like a 7,000-person camp out before. You can imagine Woodstock with no men, no drugs, and a revolutionary feminist agenda. It was it was really an amazing experience, and there was a, an environment of uh, security and safety that we rarely feel as women in our day-to-day lives, um, just from how you walk around to uh, and in the day, in the night, to leaving your cell phone to charge for coming back for it, you know, on a public stage for like four hours, and there it is. Uh, there were children, uh, men were, li- I mean, boys were allowed in if they were under a certain age. And there was a real kind of a collaborative feeling, a very, very celebratory feeling that enabled us to, to dance and to sing and to talk about it, all kinds of issues for two, three days um, and and really reflect on what our movement, or rather movements, are doing at this critical moment. But the stereotype that we have or we are told is that Mexico has a very macho, hyper-masculinized culture. So how difficult was it to have a women-only conference? And how much was even the idea contested by men who are in power? Remember that this conference was called and was held in Zapatista Autonomous Territory. That means that the government has no say in it. There's obviously no government funds involved because the communities, since they began, have re- have refused to accept any type of government aid. And these are communities that have been growing in this autonomous context now and developing a new idea of women's roles for um, for more than 20 years. So they, there was no response, really, of men in power. There was no capacity for them to block it unless they wanted to send troops in, which they obviously, fortunately, didn't do. Um, and there were really not very many comments at all uh, within the left about the meeting. The Mexican society now and all the parties, and people who are more involved in that form of politics, are very absorbed with the presidential elections of July 1st. And one of the things that's remarkable, in fact, is that this meeting took place with thousands and thousands of women, including some some very well-known feminist leaders uh, from, from other parts of the country and from other countries, and there was very little press coverage at all. Um, you could take that as a sign of the the little priority that the press gives to feminists or women's issues, or perhaps as a sign of resentment on the fact that they were only women there. But for us, it was not the point really to have uh, coverage or to make this a meeting that was going to have a huge impact in the formal political sphere, but rather to share and to go back and strengthen the movements that were represented there. And I saw reports in Telesur that uh, 
uh, women from 34 different countries came to this conference. The Zapatista are a radical group fighting for the rights of the indigenous in Mexico. How does or how did Zapatista radicalism display itself in a meeting that is uh, a conference that is hosted by Zapatista women? Well, the conference was divided up in three days, and uh, people submitted their proposals for activities, and I think, as far as I can tell, every single proposal submitted was accepted, and they programmed them into two days. So the first day was a presentation by the Zapatistas, and the second two days, Friday and Saturday, the 9th and 10th, were the the activities that were organized by the participants. That first day, there were several speeches by Zapatista women leaders. Uh, They described the process of organizing this, which took months, to create the infrastructure necessary for bathrooms and showers. Um, We slept on the ground or in tents or on stages. Um, The conditions were rustic, but nevertheless, it was a tremendous effort to organize transportation when you're talking about this many people in such a remote place. And they also talked about their experiences uh, as Zapatista women over the years. Now there's a whole generation that was born after the insurrection in the communities and has been raised with a new concept of the role of women. Because indigenous communities, and it varies by culture, can be as machista as the mainstream society, they had a lot of obstacles to face from the beginning in order to recognize both women's rights and women's and develop women's leadership and also eradicate violence in the communities. And they described very freely, they did a series of skits that portrayed uh, machista relations that still exist within the communities. And they described with a high degree of self-criticism some of the obstacles that they still face, both in terms of individual men's attitudes within the family about not letting the woman be involved in the same way or including, you know, beating her or demanding uh, her to maintain a submissive role. All this was portrayed and and presented to the participants as, as some of the, the problems that they still face in the communities. But on the other hand, we saw this capacity for organization. We saw this, this immense creativity from the music where tri- traditional macho Mexican songs were given new revolutionary feminist lyrics and performed by a Zapatista women's band to those the skits that I did and some of the dances and and uh, and very special moments in the gatherings, such as one night when I think it was the second to the last night they were presenting the um, a speech regarding the welcoming of, to the foreign participants and all this, and then they said, "Our message to you is." And all the lights and sound and everything went out. So everyone's thinking, oh, well, you know, we had another glitch in the in the power system. And then all of a sudden, in front of the stage, lined up along uh, a platform on the other side of a soccer field that they set up for, for teams to play during the two days, appeared 
a line of candles, two lines of candles. The Zapatistas had all the women had lined up on the other side, and they lit their lights simultaneously, so it looked like a line of, like, human fireflies. And that was the message, and it was very beautiful. And then they took it up in the closing speech as well, said, we lit a light for each one of you to take with you, and don't keep it to yourself, you know, and give it to you. And they did a long list of the types of violence against women and the kinds of, of, of challenges that from the disappeared to the beaten to the raped, they said, take this light and, and promise that you will fight for all of us. That gave me some uh, chills, and uh, I almost started crying there. So thank you, Laura. That was amazing. Uh, Insurgent Erica opened the meeting by saying many things. But one of the things that she is quoted saying is, "We can compete between us and the end of the gathering, and and the end of the gathering when we're back to our worlds. We will realize nobody won, or we can agree to fight together, as different as we are, against the patriarchal capitalist system." that is harming us and killing us. How much is the Zapatista movement a challenge to patriarchal capitalism, and does that in any way cause a divide, the patriarchy part of it, does that in any way cause a divide between the men and women in the Zapatista movement? I think the fact that they made a decision to put so much into organizing this women's meeting, and also recall the fact that they presented an indigenous woman as a, a candidate for the Mexican presidency. In the end, she didn't achieve the number of signatures necessary to be an independent candidate on the ballot. But both of those represent a, a, an evolution in the way of thinking among the Zapatist Army of National Liberation. Now, the Revolutionary Women's Law actually was a part of that movement from almost the very beginning. And so I think the whole process of organizing a clandestine movement, launching a war for indigenous rights, women's played such a big part that there had already been a lot of progress before the movement even became publicly known and formalized, and then since then it's continued to be a priority. So this has been a long process, and I I really doubt, you know, I haven't been privy to the internal discussions, but I really doubt that there was any resistance to having this autonomous women's space and to presenting the movement as a leader in trying to form a more cap- anti-capitalist and anti-patriarchal women's movement throughout the world. That was the big challenge to us with this with this multitude of activities from the cultural to the political and from people working on sexual and reproductive rights and education to more more political movements uh, to defend land and territory or to denounce patriarchy. At the end they their conclusion was okay we can see some of you are working against patriarchy and capitalism, and some of you are not, um, you know, not in a judging kind of way, but this whole process kind of held up a mirror to for all of us, in which we were encouraged to take a close look at, um, you know, how radical, how effective are we as an anti-capitalist and anti-patriarchal movement? Are our actions coordinated enough, which clearly they're not, 
uh, are they focused enough? Do we really have a strategic vision at this critical point in history where there's so many attacks, not just against women, but against our communities and against the planet itself? And in which women, for a broad variety of, of reasons, from indigenous women to urban women, have a leading role to play, not just as half the population, but also as uh, people that within the society that are responsible for care, that are responsible for a different set of values um, that are being constantly attacked by capitalism. We recently had a conversation with Keisha Blaine about the significant and important role that women played in the black nationalist movement uh, beginning in the 1920s and moving on through the 1930s, 40s, 50s. Then we had Ashley Farmer on the show just recently, and she talked about women's critical role in the black power movement. So my general question here is going to be the uh, you know significance of the role of women within uh, the Zapatista movement. But more importantly, uh, while men were not invited, uh, the invite did say that men would be put to work on all the necessary tasks so that we can play, talk, sing, dance, recite poetry, and engage in the other forms of art and culture that we want to share without embarrassment. The men will be in charge of all necessary kitchen and cleaning duties. To what degree is the Zapatista movement or the indigenous culture or cultures within the movement a matriarchy? Well, I don't think you could call it a matriarchy in the strict sense of being socially organized uh, with women in the leadership. What they're working toward is equality. This was a very specific context. The men who performed those tasks were outside the community because there was a there was a physical barrier. There was a gate there, and they were not allowed even to like deliver food or anything within this confine that was the women's event at the time. And so I think this role reversal, because there's so much exclusion of women from physical spaces, from social and political spaces, uh, was an interesting exercise. And I imagine I haven't actually talked to any of the men who were there present uh, during the event to see what their impression of having to, of living through that role reversal was. But I think it's good for society to see that. It's good for men to question their privilege in that sense. It's good for women to to have that privilege and to exercise that privilege, even if it's just a defined time period and a defined space. And that was one of the things that they achieved there. But again, I think what they're working toward, you know, is, is real equality and being able to create a society where women can assume that they will be able to, to the degree of their own powers and, and, and will, develop full human capacity. Did you hear any, and, and I might be using the wrong word here, uh, complaints or I should say criticism or frustration from people who were not Zapatista, from people who may have come from one of the other 34 countries that were represented there by the activists who showed up, about the Zapatista and the way that they organized, that is, in the kind of leaderless movement that they have? Were there any, were there any complaints about uh, the way that Zapatista use democracy or the way they implement democracy compared to what many of these uh, other people who had shown up may have experienced democracy in the past? 
Not really. You know, the kinds of complaints that I heard, and there weren't a lot, had to do with uh, um, somebody took my sleeping place, you know. <laughs> uh, my sleeping bag was here, and now somebody else is here. So structural and, issues. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, people who had to confront their own privilege of assuming they're going to, you know, sleep in a bed and not have to wait in line to go to the bathroom. And that was and that was something that I think was was a lesson in itself. But not the Zapatistas, on the other hand, there's a tremendous amount of respect. I mean, it was very clear that they have a moral authority within the movement, loosely speaking, um, the women's movement, and that's because there's so much. And many people said this. There's so much talk that goes on. We have endless meetings, we discuss, we argue. If you look at other types of feminist um, international meetings, the dynamic is very different from what we saw here. And here, the Zapatistas were an example of doing it. They were an example of women who were taking part in local municipal leadership on a rotating basis, on a horizontal basis of uh, women who were being trained in analyzing a new role, communities that were were taking violence against women seriously and working to eradicate it. And so all this experience really, really gave them uh, a large degree of authority within the meeting. The first day of talking to them, of their discussing with us, you know, what they've achieved uh, was very interesting for everybody there. And then the rest of the days, they attended every single one of those workshops. And they filmed it, and they watched it, and they took notes. And oftentimes didn't discuss a lot. But um, they were looking for something on their side as well. They were looking to see, and the Zapatistas have done this repeatedly, where we're at. Basically, to take the pulse of feminist movements, not just in Mexico, but throughout the world, and decide, uh, get a reading of how much uh, women's movements can be and are willing to be and are trying to be allies in in a real anti-systemic movement, in something that goes to the core of the kinds of threats that uh, women face all the time and the kinds of threats that communities face and the kinds of threats that they as Zapatistas face. So we saw very clearly that the Zapatistas were thinking, if you are stronger, both in your beliefs, in your focus, and in your numbers, then we are stronger. And we felt very clearly that if the Zapatista women are stronger, all of us are stronger as well. Laura, it is always a privilege to talk to you, and it's always fantastic to hear your voice on our show. Laura Carlson is kind enough to be our correspondent in Mexico. She is director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy in Mexico City and advisor to Just Associates. You can follow Laura on Twitter at Laura E. Carlson, and you can find out more about Laura's work at americas.org. Thank you so much for being back on our show. It's always great to hear your voice. You're listening to This Is Hell Radio. That was Laura Carlson talking with Chuck in March of last year. Next, we're going to hear from Ashley D. Farmer, also in March of 2018. This is hell. 
1960s-era black power is often seen as a temporary phenomenon coming out of nowhere, sparked by the radicalism of the decade and described as not only a sexist movement, but one that was hyper-masculinist, run by men with women pushed to the side. It turns out black power had been building for decades, if not longer, that women were its leading thinkers, that women made up the majority of groups like the Black Panther Party, and women in the black power movement made a significant contribution to what became 1960s feminism. Here to tell us what black power was really all about historian Ashley D. Farmer is author of Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era. Welcome to This Is Hell, Dr. Farmer. Thank you for having me. You can find out more about Ashley by going to her website, ashleydfarmer.com, and you can follow Dr. Farmer on Twitter at Dr. Ashley Farmer. And I just want to say for people who were listening a couple of weeks ago when we were talking to Keisha Blaine about the very intense and uh, amazing contributions of black women to the black nationalist uh, movement uh, prior to the black power movement, this is a fantastic companion to that. If you read these two books in a row, you get a really great understanding of the intense and amazing role that women have, black women have played in the black power and black nationalist movements. You mentioned the uh, July 1st, 1972 edition of the Black Panther Party's paper and the back page featuring a full-length mixed-media image of a middle-aged black woman with a caption that says, Yes, I'm against the war in Vietnam. I'm for African liberation, voter registration, and the people's survival. This image was one of over a dozen pieces of artwork that Panther Party member Gail Dixon created, many of which featured black women leading protests and championing party programs. Her artwork reflected how the Panthers, often thought to be a male-dominated organization, expressed and promoted its agenda through images of black women. So let's just start with a very basic question, and I think it's something that we really have to stress because most white people I know believe that this is the case. How male-dominated was the black power movement and the Black Panther Party? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So I don't want to give the impression that men weren't in some of the leading positions because, as we know, patriarchy and heteropatriarchy leads men to get more attention. However, what most people don't know is that the rank and file of many organizations, including the Black Panther Party, ended up being largely comprised of women. And something like the Black Panther Party by the early 1970s is really being run by women. Um, You only have to think about the fact that someone like Elaine Brown became chairwoman of the organization in the early 1970s. They were running the newspaper, etc. So some people, including Bobby Seale, Um, put the um, actual estimates of black women in the Black Panther Party to be about two-thirds when we're talking about the rank and file of over 50 chapters spread across the country. Um, So I've used the Black Panther Party as one example of how, though we maybe keep seeing these figureheads of Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael and Huey Newton, the day-to-day operations of black power, the symbols like you talked about with Gail Dixon, who are promulgating images of black power, in particular the Black Panther Party, are actually being endorsed and created and promulgated um, by black women at the grassroots level. What do we miss in understanding black power and the black power movement when we only define it as what happened within the Black Panther Party? Because black power is an idea that seems to have generated the Black Panther Party. But what happens when we only see black power, the black power movement as the embodiment and uh, as the Black Panther Party as the embodiment of black power? 
Yeah, I mean, when we only chart it as the rise and fall of one organization, we miss its breadth and its depth and actually its, you know, widespread influence. So, for example, I begin my book in the 1940s and 50s with the black women who um, were members of the Communist Party. Um, and you see through their writings and their activism how they were laying the groundwork for what we now know as the Black Panther, I'm sorry, the Black Power movement, largely because they were Garveyites or influenced by um, Marcus Garvey and the UNIA in the 1920s and 30s. So we see a larger periodization when we start that way. My book ends in the 1980s with a group called the Third World Women's Alliance, who I argue um, really developed gender-specific or women-centered versions of black power. So we really see that it's not just 1965 to 1975, or in the case of the Black Panther Party, 1966 to, you know, maybe 1975, but it really was a longer sustained movement that included a lot of thinkers um, and grassroots organizers. Also, when we don't just look at the Black Panther Party, we see how diverse black people's expressions of black power and black empowerment were. You know, everything from, you know, self-defense, meaning defense of one's community, but also one's own body, um, community control, meaning, you know, control over the resources, but also um, culture or education. Um, and when we look at it from that vantage point, we see it not as this kind of nihilistic flash in the pan movement, but a really long sustained effort that traversed multiple generations um, to really reorder the status quo and redefine blackness and, ma and manhood and womanhood in really interesting and important ways. In an October 2015 New York Times article by Salamisha Tillett, uh, which mm -hmm. you are also uh, cited in, she's the author of Sites of Slavery. Salamisha discusses sexism within the Black Panther Party. She writes, what was progressive about the Panthers' practices of equality, like having men cook in the breakfast programs and arming women to fight, also fostered tension. Salamisha cites, as you were just mentioning, Elaine Brown, who is the only woman to lead the Black Panther Party, mm -hmm. writing in her memoir, A Taste of Power, uh, did we overcome male chauvinism? Of course we didn't. Or, as I like to say, we didn't get these brothers from revolutionary heaven. To what mm -hmm. degree, then, was black power sexist or not sexist? Yeah, I think this is one of the main contentions when thinking about black power. So it certainly was sexist, it just as all movements are a product of their time. And um, as Elaine was suggesting, you know, people come into these movements and into these organizations with a bunch of preconceived ideas. The point I'm trying to argue is, is that it wasn't like super sexist. It wasn't any more sexist than any other time period in which these black women activists were working, even though it's gotten a bad rap for that. And as a result, because it's gotten this bad rap, we are really overlooking the ways in which black women contributed to it or fought back against it or transformed it from within the movement or this idea that it was so totalizing they couldn't fight against it. So I agree with Elaine Brown in the sense that it was a little it was a push and a pull of um, black women fighting against some of these issues and trying to make um, their counterparts live up to the relevant revolutionary values that they were professing to have. But what we're missing here is that conversation between men and women in the Black Panther Party, in the Congress um, of African People headed by Baraka, um, in the Communist Party, all of these kinds of instances in which black women were moving the needle. And it was much more of a conversation um, than we give it credit for. 
Also, when we look at black women and we talk about the ways in which they are fighting sexism or developing intersectional analyses of liberation from within these groups, we see that they're really shifting the minds of men like a Milana Karenga, a Miriam Baraka, an Aldridge Cleaver, a Huey Newton. And so we get a whole different story about also how these men's thinking transformed on the issues of gender equality, of women's liberation, on sexual equality, when we look at it from their vantage point that we're not getting when we just assume that everything was sexist and there was no debate or no kind of consternation amongst um, activists, really thinking about how to get to a higher revolutionary plane. In that Times article, Salamisha also discusses the void left by black men who were arrested, dropped out of the movement due to police harassment, or went underground. To what extent did women have power within the Black Panther Party or within the black power movement because men were being targeted by law enforcement and relative to men, women were not? Or did women play a larger role than simply filling a void left by men? argue that they were always there and didn't just fill the void. However, we cannot deny that FBI and in particular Cointelpro targeted black men because it has the same sexist ideas about who's running things as um, some of us do today. Um, And so they certainly targeted black men, but that does not mean that there weren't immense files and immense surveillance and immense um, torturing of black women activists, both inside and outside of the Black Panther Party. Almost every woman in my book has a very extensive FBI file, sometimes lasting 20, 30, 40 years, even after um, they were um, not associated with some of these organizations that were talked about. That said, there was, in this particular um, circumstance of the Black Panther Party, really um, a taking out of the top male leadership. Um, But my argument to you is not simply that black women just jumped in all of a sudden and filled the void, but they rose to the top because they were already there well-versed in the Black Panthers' ideology and programs, and were doing the kind of work without getting kind of the leadership credit or title credit anyway. So they just became the natural leaders because they were already leading in all these other respects. And you're right, to be sure, activists, social and political organizing transformed race relations in the second half of the 20th century. However, organizers were also expressly interested in redefining black identity outside white Eurocentric norms and values. How much do you think that challenge to Eurocentric norms and values of manhood and womanhood constituted the threat that white white supremacy saw, the, the threat that white privilege saw? How much was black power seen as a threat, not only because it was black people fighting for equality and liberation, but also because it was black women challenging Eurocentric gender, gender norms? I think it was a huge part. I mean, some people argue that Black Panther was, I mean, sorry, black power was largely... Um, Uh, the most successful along the lines of cultural revolution. Um, There can be no denial that culture plays a huge part in sustaining and perpetuating white supremacy, Um, and perhaps it's one of its most pervasive arms, because even if you're not associated with um, particular political movements, you can be um, influenced or indoctrinated by white supremacist culture and cultural norms. So I think that when we saw these collectives not only doing um, really important cultural work on the self, meaning changing hairstyles, meaning dress, names, um, creating new um, experiences such as those that were in the US organization in, in Southern California, 
or in the Committee for Unified Newark in um, Newark, New Jersey. But you also see how the culture can be a door into larger political movements. So what started is simply, you know, perhaps these kind of individual transformations and um, eschewing of white culture then trickled into education and wanting to educate their children differently and taking over parts of the school system. And then from that, it went to, you know, developing politics and wanting to hold the positions that determined what kinds of culture was endorsed by the state. So I think it was really quite a worrisome thing for um, white supremacist structures in both the state and federal government because they understood how culture could be a gateway into um, other forms of political activity and also just how much of a stronghold culture has, white European culture has. And once that's released, you feel a freedom to take on white supremacy in a different way. Which also suggests the power of patriarchy within white supremacy and white privilege. Our guest is historian Ashley D. Farmer, the author of Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era. How do you think uh, redefining men's and women's roles, how much do you think that should be central in any activism, that first we must redefine men and women's roles? And, And to what extent do you think adherence to popularized gender roles is an obstacle for any liberation or fight for equality, even yes in black power, yes in black liberation, but in anything? I think it's a really important question. So, I mean, one of the things that most of my um, activists in my book would argue that these very strict heteropatriarchal gender roles are a disciplining structure of capitalism, meaning this is a way in which you keep um, black men or black women or women in general confined to certain forms of work. And also it keeps um, antagonisms developing between um, men and women in any particular liberation movement. So I think that one of the things that the women in my book and that I study have realized is that not only does adhering to these particular forms of gender roles passed down by white supremacy, um, you know, hurting them because of the cultural markers of Eurocentrism and white supremacy, but also that they are um, kind of allowing them to kowtow or play into capitalist structures and ideas about the nuclear family, who can work, what kinds of work is valued, etc. So I think that's something that they're really trying to change. I would say, though, that... Um, this idea of only manhood and womanhood or this kind of gendered pairing, this heterosexual gendered pairing, was one of the things that um, they were really caught in in this particular moment. There are a few groups within Black Power um, that were able to get out of that um, that kind of structure, um, even though we saw it start to happen as we move later into the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, but it's certainly a hindrance, I think, and certainly something that they felt was at the cornerstone or the foundation of challenging all forms of um, oppression, racial, sexual, economic, etc. But again, a reflection of the times. Mm-hmm, uh, absolutely. You, you write that women in the black power movement's attempts to theorize and embody these idealized political identities reveal how the gendered imaginary was an important space of political and ideological activism, and they demonstrate the centrality of black womanhood to the era's debates about race, class, and gender. How much were women then, women in the black power movement, at the forefront of these discussions? And if so, what explains why they are not as celebrated as, say, Gloria Steinem, for instance? Why, when we think or speak or celebrate feminism, are women of the black power movement seemingly absent, if not erased from history? Yeah, I think the the point I'm trying to make here is that um, in a that 
the idea of what a woman is supposed to do and a man is supposed to do and what a black woman and a black man are supposed to be was a key site of um, contestation. It was it was a moment in which black people were really trying to define their politics, define which way towards liberation. And these were the, some of the primary conduits in through which um, people were trying to explore this. I think the reason why we are they are not remembered for talking about this or redefining these roles or pushing back against sexism so much is because there's a really common narrative about black power and, and black women. It, it goes one of three ways. Either black power was so incredibly sexist that they did not do any of the things that I say that they did in the book. Um, it was so sexist that they ended up joining white feminist movements or that they ended up just finding out separate groups of their own or not organizing. So there's this kind of declension narrative in which black women were frustrated at every turn and could not articulate their politics or could not articulate new ideas of womanhood. And I think that um, that kind of retelling of history as um, black women just being left out leads us not to look for the ways in which they were doing this. And if we're not looking for it, how can we record it and remember it in positive or um, influential or valuable ways? And I know I'm going to get an email saying this because this happens every time we have somebody on the show who talks about the role of women, the significant role of women in whatever movement. And that is that we are romanticizing an era, over-romanticizing an era. What would you say to somebody who says what uh, you know, Dr. Farmer is doing here on your show is just romanticizing the role of women uh, during in, within the black power movement? I would say that if they read the book, they'll see that I don't argue that everybody was equally successful or everything was transformative or that everything was even equally radical. There's some women in my book who I think um, are only articulating maybe progressive or slightly um, you know, more progressive ideas about womanhood and gender roles than the men that they are. There's some women who are really pushing the envelope, and everybody has varying degrees of success. Um, but only organizing or thinking about it on the success for failure narrative obscures a longer conversation and kind of dynamic, one uh, between black men and black women in the party or in the organizations that I talk about writ large. Um, and then two, it also just suggests that there's no pushback whatsoever. You know, there can be a very lot of value in talking about pushback and discussion and the dreams that these black women were developing and working towards, even if they were ultimately unsuccessful in thinking about how we should understand this movement and what parts of it might be useful for us trying to create new worlds today. How much did uh, women in the black power movement, how much did they radicalize black power? Did women push men, men in the black power movement into more radical positions than they may have had? I mean, there's there's very clear examples of this. One of the best examples um, I can think of is in, with um, cultural nationalist or kawaiitist. Um, these are the folks that primarily were doing African dress um, and cultural practices. And Milana Kuringa, who created Kawaita in 1965, was also the founder of the holiday of Kwanzaa. So he was somebody who I think has got an interesting rap for being um, very patriarchal and very conservative. And as his views um, spread across the country, it found other adopters, like somebody like Mary Baraka, who also endorsed these views. However, you talk to these men and you look at the written record um, of these organizations as they change over time, they actually state 
that these women were fighting them tooth and nail and made them change their policies. And you can see an evolution in their writings and in their speeches from the beginnings to the ends of these organizations in which they actually credit black women with saying, you know, if you're going to really involve, be involved in cultural revolution or political revolution, you can't espouse these gender roles that limit black women. This isn't going to work and this isn't the kind of future that we want. So I really think that, um, and, and that's an example of someone who would be considered kind of very much right on the spectrum, moving more towards the left on these ideas. Um, so I think there is very, um, very tangible evidence, both from um, the ways in which these men talk about gender roles um, and women's roles um, in liberation over the course of their careers, and also when you speak about them today, um, that they, they did have an influence, absolutely. How much do you think, uh, how much impact did women in the black power movement and their views on gender hierarchies shape white perspectives on gender, whether white people know it or not? Um, I think that there is um, way more influence than we give credit for. Um, there, there are plenty of women who joined, um, you know, kind of white feminist organizations during this period and worked in that way. But it, I think that especially groups like the Black Panther Party were extremely influential um, in the 1960s. And um, we see lots of evidence of white women at the very least saying that we understand where these women are coming from, um, that we need to be more mindful of integrating a racial critique um, into our critique of patriarchy, uh, anti-capitalist critique into our critique of patriarchy. These white women were reading what black women and black power were writing. Um, they were listening to their speeches. And so there's, I think there's a great argument to be made for intellectual influence of these groups, even if some of these women that I'm talking about did not identify as feminist or would not be involved in these groups because they felt like they didn't take their racialized concerns into account. To what degree are black women at the forefront of radicalism in the U.S. Uh, historically and generally? To what extent are black women in the black power movement the trailblazers of U.S. radicalism? I mean, they're certainly a huge part. They are the legacy of, um, you know, radical women from the early 1920s and 1930s, as you um, mentioned with Keisha Blaine's book, um, Set the World on Fire. Earlier, I mean, the women that I am talking about really are the ideological and organizational heirs of that kind of radical nationalist politics. And I think they took it even further with their class critiques, their critiques of imperialism, and um, as we get later into the 1960s and 70s, their critiques of heteropatriarchy specifically. Um, but what you see among black women is the trend across um, time is that they are typically the most oppressed. You know, we've got racism, we've got sexism, we've got economic inequality, and to some extent, um, um, sexual inequality, depending on how one identifies. And so those who are most oppressed typically have the most forward-thinking ideas about how to get about, go about liberation and, and, and really just want to see a better day in which all of these things are not being piled onto them at once. Um, so if you really track black women's intellectual productions, their speeches, their writings, their drawings, as you talked about, you really see them pushing, um, you know, further, everybody further to the left and saying, you know, if we're free, everybody gets a little bit more free. How long was the evolution toward black power taking place? What, how might we misunderstand black power if we only see it as a phenomenon of the 1960s? What misconceptions might that lead us to? 
Um, I think it leads us to certain misconceptions about who is involved in it, the, the breadth and depth of it. Like I said, usually we, we do a rise and fall um, after 1966 because of Stokely, pa- Stokely Carmichael's Black Power exclamation in Mississippi, and also um, that same year was the rise of the Black Panther Party. So that's when we usually mark the beginning of it. However, what you miss by that is all of the grassroots work people were doing around ideas of black empowerment, self-defense, and community control. A certain example would be somebody like a Robert F. Williams in Monroe or Mae Mallory, who was also in Monroe and in um, New York City. So you miss kind of the building blocks of that that gets to something like an exclamation of um, Black Power by Stokely Carmichael or the start of the Black Panther Party in 1966. When we stop it around 1975, which is the typical end, we really stop it there because many of the organizations that we know so well had been decimated by Cointelpro. But what I argue is that when we look specifically at women, we see the ways in which women, in particular women's feminine groups, something like the Third World Women's Third World Women's Alliance, which I discussed in the last chapter, are really picking up on these ideals. They were born out of Black Power. They were Black Power activists and carrying them to the next generation in the early 1980s. So we miss a whole slew of people that were doing the building blocks of it before the 1960s, and we don't we don't see the ways in which it transformed and lived on in its legacy post 75, and we only think about it as that short 10-year span. So how does black power then of the 1960s differentiate itself from earlier moments of black nationalism? Um, I think that there's a couple of different things. Um, first is um, a more um, imperialist, anti-imperialist critique that develops, um, particularly because we're in the war in Vietnam, and we're also in a moment of rapid African decolonization in the 1960s and early 1970s. Um, so I don't want to give the impression that... Um, Black people before the 1950s never thought about America as an imperialist state, but I think the explicit organizing around that changes um, in the 1960s and 1970s. I also think you see a more intersectional um, strain develop within black power as movement goes on. And this is certainly a product of a moment in which um, the women's liberation, the gay liberation movement are also taking place. Um, But it certainly is um, something that is very specific to Um, the 1960s and 1970s version of black power and black empowerment. You argue that although activists' definition of black power differed, they were united in their declaration of a new militant racial consciousness and driven by the collective goal of creating a new black identity. On the surface, this manifested in a cumulative shift from identifying with the term Negro to adopting the moniker black. Activists' new assertions of black identity were more than simply rhetorical expressions of militancy. They were the cornerstones of black power-era radicalism. If identity was the cornerstone of black power, how much is any challenge today to black identity politics, especially with when concerning blacks, obviously, a, a challenge to black power? Um, you know, I think that the, there is this there's a broad concern with those who are in power of black people identifying with blackness, both as a cultural phenomenon, as a political group, and also as a larger diaspora. So um, my point here in saying that is that if, if people start to identify less with European markers, less with um, cultural markers, less with the kind of the American nation state understanding of black and start to define it as their own, it becomes a threat to the American nation state because they know that the logical um, kind of steps beyond that is organizing against capitalism and racism and patriarchy and imperialism in that way. Um, so I think that's also why you see um, this emphasis now on the black identity extremists. There's something that the government sees as a threat of black people identifying as black, asserting their blackness, 
and asserting um, a set of politics and actions that goes along with it. So one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is explain that although um, we certainly have great strides that were made in terms of politics or in terms of economic organizing or anti-capitalist organizing within the Black Power movement, I think it's very important that we don't forget that just simply identifying as Black and asserting a a form of Black politics as part of that identification was a huge part of the movement. It was a way to get everybody involved, and it was seen as a very viable threat to um, the powers that be. There is so much that we could talk about on this topic. This is uh, really a fascinating book, but I'm just going to touch on a couple of things before we go. Uh, You write how activists such as Claudia Jones, Alice Childress, and Mae Mallory revived black nationalist frameworks espoused in the 1920s and 30s and infused them into a new political identity for black women in the post-war era. And that made me think about... Rosie the Riveter. How much did Rosie the Riveter create a new political identity for black women? Because when Rosie is discussed, it's usually, if not always, the impact on white women, not black. To what extent did Rosie not only empower black women, but potentially continue the radicalization of black women? Um, that's an interesting question. I think that you're right, 100%. The, um, the ideas of Rosie the Riveter are primarily white women. However, black women, as we know, were a key part of the war effort, and it's also offered an opportunity, one, for black women to not only get skills and earn a job um, in a different fashion than basically working in white women's houses, but it also sent black women abroad and around a bunch of different places that would allow for um, – um, them to become radicalized by viewing other forms, other racial hierarchies, et cetera. So I don't know how much um, that actual image did, but I do think that the war um, and the benefits from the war certainly catalyzed their thinking in terms of global imperialism, in terms of the role of the American nation state in um, supporting black people and in, in, um, you know, diseg- um, discriminating against black people, and also offered them an opportunity to understand the workforce and develop their own critiques of um, the way work and capital function. And for me, one of the things about your book is it really shows that the legacy of black women in positions of power in the black nationalist movement and subsequently the black power movement, how much of an impact that has today on the power of uh, the leadership within the Black Lives Matter movement and how that, again, is women. One last question for you, Ashley. We've been speaking with historian Ashley D. Farmer, author of Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era. You can find Dr. Farmer on Twitter at Dr. Ashley Farmer, and you can go to our website to find out more at AshleyDFarmer.com. Our final guest, our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And this is kind of involved with an ongoing conversation we've had about uh, <clears throat> depression and unhappiness. <clears throat> How much is the struggle for black power, a struggle for control over your own life. Because we recently spoke with Johan Hari about his new book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. And one of the causes he sees of any epidemic we may be experiencing of unhappiness or depression is a seeming lack of control over our lives within neoliberalism, so within this newer age. How much is the lack of control white people are feeling now under neoliberalism, something that black people have been fighting against, well, for centuries? And how much does any lack of control, in your opinion, lead to an epidemic of unhappiness or even depression within black communities for a very, very, very long time? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. I um, 
you're right. I think that black people have been dealing with um, the effects of things that white people are now understanding as neoliberalism for some time. I mean, the idea of neoliberalism in and of itself is raced, um, that there was this period before this in which white people were not feeling these same effects. That's not That has not ever been the case for black people. And I think what I'm talking about with identifying and redefining what it means to be a woman or be a man is at the, is at the heart of what you're talking about. It's really about asserting this is the kind of person I want to be in the world, that my mind is not being controlled solely by these powers to be that are white, and that through asserting or aspiring to be a different kind of man or a different kind of woman that's not defined by these things, I can assert some control over my life. And when you can assert control, you feel empowered and you certainly feel less depressed. Ashley, I really, really, really appreciate having you on the show today. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for being on our show. And for those of you who did read the Keisha Blaine book, now read Ashley's book. I really appreciate this conversation. You're listening to This Is Hell. That was historian Ashley Farmer talking with Chuck in March of 2018. Next, we're going to hear from organizer Bree Busk from March of 2019. This is hell. Chilean feminism is challenging a macho establishment that has forever dominated the country, as well as the more recent neoliberal order by going beyond more interse- mere intersexualism towards strategies that are multi-sectoral and transversal. Here to help us understand what that is so other activists may learn from the successes of Chilean feminism, American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile, Bree Busk, has written the Roar magazine articles, Chile's feminists inspire a new era of social struggle, and Chile's feminist movement is here to stay, which are two parts of an ongoing series. Bree is writing on Chilean feminism at Roar magazine. Welcome to This Is Hell, Bree. Hey, nice to be here with you. Bree is a member of both Black Rose Anarchist Federation in the U.S. and Solidaridad in Chile. You can find out more about Black Rose Anarchist Federation at blackrosefed.org, and you can follow Black Rose on Twitter at brrn underscore fed. So uh, in your first article, Chile's Feminists Inspire a New Era of Social Struggle, you write it is May 2018, and as winter descends on Santiago, uh, Chile, a new wave of feminist activity is exploding into life, anti-patriarchal, uh, graffiti covers the city's walls and streets are littered with the evidence of recent marches. Tension is rising in the universities and social media are flooded with posts ranging from cautious inquiries to joyous declarations. Is the downtown campus of PUC occupied states one? That's the Pontifica uh, Universidad uh, Catholic of uh, Chile. Was UCEN taken over? That's the Central University of Chile. Instituto Arcos on feminist strike. There were these kind of things that were being posted online. Back in 2011 and going until 2013, there were major student demonstrations during what started as the August 2011 Chilean winter protests, which led to the larger Chilean education conflict. Is the Chilean uh, feminist movement of last year and now continuing into 2019 How much is this an outcome of the student protests from earlier this decade? Is this the legacy of those protests? That is a wonderful question, because that is one of the topics that I really try to dig into in my article, is that the answer is both yes and no, because the students are, they were definitely the protagonists in 2018. The students have a long history of struggle, but... uh, in 2018, the students weren't particularly active at the beginning of the year. 
it wasn't a time where students were in a constant cycle of marching in the streets or making demands. In fact, it was kind of a quiet moment. So the feminist movement, I would say, intersected with the student movement, and the students were the ones with the muscle memory to kind of pick it up and start running. What was the state of patriarchal power and the state of feminism before the current feminist movement. For people in our audience who are not familiar with Chilean culture, who haven't visited Chile, what was the state of feminism before the current feminist movement? Well, Chilean feminism goes all the way back. There's a really wonderful, inspirational history going back to like the previous turn of the century. But I would say this era started probably around 2013, that's when issues like uh, legalizing abortion uh, kind of rose to the top again here. Like uh, before 2017, they had one of the most restrictive anti-abortion laws in all of Latin America with like no exceptions whatsoever, even in the case of rape or uh, fetal inviability, things like that. But um, also we have had a kind of a growing tension around the issue of femicide, which is the uh, targeting of women or violence and murder just because they're women or because they are not behaving the way that men expect women to. So often these femicides are carried out by boyfriends, husbands, exes, um, family members, or people in the community who don't like to see women doing well for themselves or saying no. So that um, topic has been in the news, in all the headlines for years. And part of the more recent feminist movement has been focused on articulating that as a particular social political issue and then also organizing against it. So you have all these kind of mixed, mixed issues, the abortion struggle, the struggle against gendered violence, and more recently, articulating uh, economic issues through a feminist lens. And these were all kind of cooking in the background, but nothing had quite spiked into a huge social movement in the streets until 2018. And I want to talk about that in a second, but uh, and I, I don't want to engage in tragedy porn but I want to just follow up on something that you asked, you just said. Uh, how common is femicide in Chile? Well, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but let me put it this way. Like, you basically hear something in the news every week. In fact, uh, there were two femicides that took place in Chile that were reported and documented just in, like, the day before the march. And I'm sure that the outrage around that really... Uh, you know, put the fire to people's feet to jump up and participate at that moment. One of the things I'm concerned about, Bree, is an oversimplification of uh, the feminist movement in Chile if it gets reported, if it gets reported here in the United States and the U.S. media. I'm, I'm just concerned that uh, it's going to be reported as a march or a movement for reproductive rights, and that's it, and it's going to stop at that point. What is missed when we only see the feminist movement in Chile as a fight for reproductive rights? 
Well, I would say you're missing almost all of it because that is an important pillar, but I don't think it's been the motivating factor, you know, even in the most recent years. It's there, but I think that really growing inequality is perhaps more of a, a motivator. Right? And when we talk about, like, gendered violence, of course, we can talk about femicide, domestic abuse, things like that. But we're also talking about basically the violence of capitalism. Like, Chile is, uh, to the outside world, especially to the Latin American kind of region where it is, is really well economically compared to others. There's a lot of uh, economic migrants who come to Chile for that reason. It's considered like a stable, good country where people can make it. But at the same time, much like the U.S., uh, there is an increasing gap between rich and poor. And women are really even further disadvantaged under that system. For example, with our pension system, um, you only get uh, to accumulate money towards your pension when you're working. So what about uh, the many, many, many Chilean women who are working in the home, you know, as housewives, caregivers, um, or working in the informal economy, which is huge here. Like, probably it's more the rule than the exception to be working without a stable contracted job. So women, like, they're finding feminism in their homes, in their jobs, uh, in their schools. When we're talking about, like, sexist educational policies, the lack of sex education, lack of protocols to protect students from abuse in their educational uh, institutions. Like, yeah, feminism is everywhere. And I think that's the one thing that people need to see about this movement right now. In 2013, Chile did elect Michelle Bachelet as president. Did that in any way have an impact on the feminist movement? Because, you know, here in the States, Barack Obama is elected president in 2008, and all of a sudden people are saying that we're living in a post-racial society, which is definitely not the case. So I'm wondering if there was the same kind of exaggeration in Chile, that there was somehow living in a post-sexist Chile because Michelle Bachelet had become president. Did, that, did her election in any way have an impact on the feminist movement in Chile? Well, I wasn't here for the period where she was in power, but I can say that uh, you were not the first person who I've heard make a connection between Bachelet and Obama, because I think they both represented um, a lot of hope because they were coming from like a kind of progressive type of messaging. And in a way, Bachelet did make some improvements, did make some concrete improvements that women benefited from. But much like Obama, by the time she was uh, finishing her second term, people were very uh, disillusioned with what she could accomplish. Uh, she was in power for a lot of the high points of the student movement. And I think maybe the students felt that she was going to be a better asset to their struggle. Um, and in then there were some accomplishments achieved, but we don't have free education in Chile. So clearly having a, maybe a a woman or even a socialist as president was not enough to achieve like the major goals of the movement. You mentioned uh, how the feminist movement in Chile has been disrupting and challenge or was disrupting and challenging the left as a whole. 
how did feminists disrupt and challenge the left? That uh, was something that I saw a lot of in the period right before 2018, like 2000, maybe the end of 2015 and in 2016. It was like feminism was on the table and all of the kind of traditional leftist groups, both like the official parties that run uh, candidates in elections and also, you know, the smaller political groups or social movement organizations, they have to think, like, what are we going to do with this now that we can't avoid it? Um, some political groups decided to avoid it, and a lot of them paid the consequences for that with losing female membership, with having terrible split. Um, other groups just dissolved under the pressure, um, whereas others were able to integrate these new critiques and issues that were being presented. Because in a way, like left establishment can be just as obstinate as right establishment parties. Uh, people who have been in power for a long time, they don't like being told that they have to do things differently or think of things that they didn't consider before. Like if they're, we have a good portion of the left in Chile that are very comfortable. And suddenly people who are used to having leadership like assuming that male leadership was the default, are being forced to um, accept changes. And I think some feminists maybe just want to see it all burn, whereas others are in the trenches trying to force change in their respective organizations or movements to make them feminists, essentially. You write the Chilean student movement has a long, rich history, most recently marked by periods of struggle, as we've been discussing, in 2006 and from 2011 to 2013, and can seem quite exotic to foreign audiences thanks to iconic photos of occupied schools and massive mobilizations. However, there is a danger in romanticizing these superficial images of struggle. The risk is that without historical grounding or contextual analysis, this current spectacle of youthful feminist rebellion will obscure the far more intriguing political developments taking place away from the cameras. What are those developments that are taking place away from the cameras? Um, well, I think that one of the most interesting topics right now is in regards to the immigrant movement here, which I would say is just beginning to come into being. Because uh, Chile traditionally hasn't counted on a lot of uh, immigration. It's a very isolated country. You have the ocean to the west, the Andes to the east, the Atacama Desert to the north, and Patagonia to the south. But like with all countries, um, when Chile became more um, stable and more economically advanced than its neighbors, it started to attract more and more people. And right now, you have a huge number of Venezuelans entering the country. Uh, we also have a lot of immigrants from Haiti. And they represent a really interesting new challenge for Chile because, first of all, there isn't a large established black population in Chile, or at least there wasn't before. So in a way, Chileans are having to develop their racial consciousness at the same time that they're uh, kind of learning what it means to be a country that's attracting immigrants in massive numbers. And of course, the product has been a lot of xenophobia 
and developing anti-black racism as well. Some people are becoming more conservative. However, I think something that is really inspirational is that one of the first groups that said, we need to deal with racism, we need to be dealing with uh, this um, anti-immigrant sentiment was the feminist movement, even before it was reaching the peak that it has today. Um, For example, the uh, International Working Women's Day, March 8th, uh, the year before last, I remember attending a basically a propaganda-making event where everyone translated all of the slogans of the march into Haitian Creole and put them all around the city uh, with messages saying, like, uh, women immigrants, we welcome you to the struggle. Like, And not just in the messaging, but in terms of trying to do, like, concrete outreach and support. Because women migrants, they are in a position of, like, hyper-vulnerability. Hyper um, some don't know Spanish. Some don't have legal status. Uh, some will still be victims of femicide, uh, state violence. So we feel that uh, the feminist tendency intersecting with the immigrant movement is something that definitely deserves more attention. You write that in late 2017, the struggle against femicide and gendered violence converged with the immigrant, immigrant rights movement with the death of Joanne Florville, a young Haitian woman accused of abandoning her infant daughter. And uh, we do a weekly meet and greet with our listeners. And we actually had a feminist from Chile drop by this last week, week and she was saying how this was such a such a horrible event and such a turning point. Uh, Joanne was uh, subsequently arrested and held in detention until her death 30 days later, allegedly due to injuries occurred during her arrest. As a recent migrant who didn't speak Spanish, Joanne was uh, placed in a position of hyper-vulnerability, unable to explain her actions to the police or to defend herself against their accusations. Her death has since become emblematic of growing xenophobia, a problem which is further exacerbated by anti-black racism and misogyny. So anti-black racism, misogyny, anti-immigrant. Does any of this reflect a growing far right that is increasingly violent in Chile under neoliberalism, as is being seen in other neoliberalism democracies? Is, are, are you seeing a rise of the far right in Chile? Um, short answer is yes. Um, it's been manifesting in a lot of different ways, like, First of all, you have to think that, like, fascism never really went away here. Like, the deal that the kind of institutional left made when uh, democracy returned to Chile was uh, that a lot of people were not going to get put in jail for their participation in the dictatorship, which means that you have people in Congress right now uh, who are pinochetistas, like, openly, without shame. There are still monuments to fascist ideologues up in the city in public places. So, in a way, like the history of the far right or fascism here is also still in the, it's like an unbroken uh, part of the chain coming from the dictatorship. But we've also seen some uh, new developments here. Like, uh, for example, in the last uh, presidential elections, we had. Um, a candidate, uh, I would say a fascist candidate, uh, his name was Kast, and he was just 
you know, I think people in the U.S. would recognize him as a familiar sort of type of public figure. Kind of gave me that uh, Steve Bannon feel where he won't say exactly what he's for, but he knows how to dog whistle with the best of them. And he kind of represents the maybe the polite or the institutional face of what is really a violent, growing right-wing movement. Um, we have also a lot of these smaller sort of grassroots fascist organizations that organize under like um, slogans like neither the right nor the left, which always means the right, incidentally, or um, we're just patriots. We don't care about um, who you are. We just want traditional values, which for them are anti-abortion, anti-feminist, and anti-migrant, and under the uh, slogan of anti-migrant, they do mean also anti-black. And those groups, they have been increasing their media presence, getting more interviews. Um, I see their graffiti going up around the city and also their, uh, their posters and propaganda. I think that the worst example that we saw was last year during the annual March to Expand Abortion Rights, the one particular group uh, came and did try to do like basically a propaganda action to disrupt the march, uh, to try to drag some barricades into the street. Uh, they had a big banner that said something like basically female animals should be sterilized. Uh, meaning, of course, feminist. And they uh, had kind of uh, buckets of blood and animal viscera that they dumped on the march out. And, of course, that was disruptive enough. It didn't stop things. But there was another group of hooded, masked individuals that attacked the march in uh, different sections simultaneously, stabbing some of the women who were participating in the march. And no one was caught for that crime. And, of course, the groups denied carrying out that attack, but basically they did it. You mentioned Jose Antonio Cast, and you write in your article, Jose Antonio Cast, whose 2017 presidential campaign promised a return to law and order and was welcomed by traditional conservatives. His hardline, abor- uh, hardline positions on immigration and social issues such as abortion made him an inspirational figure to fascist groups organizing on the grassroots level. The ascent of nationalist and ethno-supremacist movements globally has given Chilean fascists a feeling of increased legitimacy, and the threat of organized violence against black migrants and feminists is moving from empty posturing to real violence on the street. But caste came in fourth place in the first round of 2017's presidential election, was not able to make it to the runoff, and he got less than 8% of the vote. So how representative representative is cast of Chile, or is his popularity growing since his 2017 electoral defeat? Well, I would say that not everyone would support him. I think Pinera is a much easier candidate to get behind, even for more extreme conservatives, because his main angle is like he is a businessman, uh, he would rather kind of 
ignore the feminist movement into non-existence or to kind of maybe rebrand it, de-escalate, use kind of like softer tactics. But I think um, something that we've seen in the U.S. is that fascists don't necessarily expect to win, but they can use elections as a method to uh, get their message out there, to kind of create a... um, a higher visibility for their type of politics. And he is not the only politician with that type of angle. But, um, yeah, I would say that that movement is growing, but I think the feminist movement is growing faster and it's better organized. Whenever some of the right-wing extremist groups try to do their own actions, they're inevitably much smaller, much weaker, and maybe focused on trying to gain media attention more than like posing an actual like counter to the movements of the left right now. But things can change quickly. I think in the U.S. we you know had a candidate who was a joke for many years, and now he is our president. And I think that Chileans believe that you know the tide can turn quickly. So it's. So, it's- is feminism in Chile then, is that leading to a decline in fascism? Because, you know, I was thinking about that when you were just answering your question. I was thinking maybe this is a, you know, can is feminism actually undermining fascism? Because there's 75, I saw a poll that said 75% of Chileans are supportive of the feminist movement. So is it really having a, a big em- impact as far as anti-fascism is concerned? Um, I don't know if it's undermining it. But I do think that um, fascists have to, they can't organize without thinking about the feminist movement. Like, um, I've thought about it before, like, where is the army to fight the rise of fascism? And I think the feminist movement is the army that we have, not just in Chile, but in Brazil, maybe even in the U.S. eventually. But I don't know. I don't think I'm ready to make, like, an assessment of that because... I think that people are still operating with a certain degree of caution. Like, for example, um, a lot of the feminist leaders, the people who you see on TV um, all the time are still going around with security details. There is still, like, fear that there could be, like, isolated attacks. But I haven't seen a fascist march in quite some time either. So I think that also, similar to the U.S., those types of groups, have their own internal power struggles and tear themselves apart. Um, There was um, a small action done the week before the March 8th um, strike where a little teeny uh, group, I think they were identified as sort of like right-wing libertarians, um, tried to do like a counter-propaganda activity. And it was so small that it was just, erased by the flood of media attention to the feminist activities that were happening at the same time. Prensa Latina reported this week that on the first year of his second term, President Sebastian Piñera has the lowest popularity rating of the period at 37 percent, according to a study by the consulting firm Kadem for the first week of March. The pollster blames this fall on the controversy over the installation of new meters of electricity and the foreseeable increase in electricity rates by 18 percent. However, the survey 
also deals with the mobilizations of International Women's Day last week with conclusive results since 67 percent of those polled considered there were sufficient reasons to call for a feminist strike. And 73 percent think that Chile is a macho country. What impact, if any, have the feminist mobilizations had on the popularity of Chile's president? How do the protests depict Piñera? Uh, well, I saw some uh, pretty brutal banners during the march about uh, people sharing their opinions on the president. But um, I would say, like, Piñera was put in a tough position because, like I said before, I think he would much prefer to kind of ignore things or to just say, hey, can't we all be friends? Aren't we all feminists? And he was kind of uh, robbed of that opportunity because the feminist movement placed some really direct demands on the administration saying, these are the things that we want you to answer to. And by not engaging with that conversation, in a way, I feel like he looked a little lost, like he was the one who was behind the times. And um, his Minister of, let's say it's like the Ministry of Gender, Women, and the Family. He had chosen a very, very right-wing um, woman from the Udi Party to take that job. And this woman is uh, Isabel Pla. She's been having a, a lot of bad press because, of course, from her position, she's been called on to address the state of women in Chile. And she says, we don't need to strike. This isn't for us. We need conversation. Also, feminism isn't left-wing. What about other feminists? But the fact that we had such massive numbers mobilizing in the streets kind of put the lie to the feminism is also a right-wing activity. Clearly, like the uh, people who want social justice, an end to violence, um, economic equality, um, social benefits, things like that. They're, those are the desires, the demands that are uh, aligning under feminism. And the narrative, the right-wing narrative of uh, economic advancement for economically comfortable women is not, it's not a, a demand to mobilize under. So I think that in short, the administration is getting left behind and the, the people are coming up with their own answers. You mentioned the multi-sectoral and transversal tendencies within the feminist movement in Chile, which arguably hold the potential to unite Chile's diverse social movements into a force capable of presenting a real challenge to the triad of capitalism, patriarchy, and the state, as well as the emergence of La Coordinadora, Eight de Marzo, the uh, coalition uh, that's CM, CM8, uh, the, uh, or C8M, the coalition currently serving as the primary vehicle for this political approach. You're not saying only intersectional, but multisectoral and transversal tendencies within the movement. Is this more than intersectional? What, what do you mean by being a multisectoral and transversal movement? Because while the Chilean feminist movement is fascinating on its own, as you point out in your article, there's a lot we can learn from it. So what do you mean by being multisectoral and transversal? All right. Well, multisectoralism is the idea of 
mobilizing different sectors, or I would say like areas of struggle around common demands. Like example sectors could be like, for example, healthcare, the student movement, the labor movement, or uh, the territorial movement, which is like the movement of communities, uh, land, territory, housing. So um, multi-sectoralism is the idea that um, movements shouldn't just stay in their lane, that you need an analysis that incorporates all of these different areas, and then to find something to bind them together so you can have the students supporting the labor demands, the workers supporting the demands for um, dignified housing. Right? The idea is to get everyone on the same page, working together through networks of mutual support. So no issue is left behind, but no issue stands in isolation. Like, uh, for example, um, there is an organization here that um, would translate as maybe the um, Healthcare for All movement, and they are a multi-sectoral organization in that they bring together medical professionals, they bring together patients, they bring to bit, uh, together medical students, and try to do healthcare work that touches on all these other areas. Uh, for example, when there was an indigenous um, hunger striker who was um, carrying out a hunger strike in order to access um, the right to do some of his religious ceremonies, the uh, healthcare organization mobilized around supporting him from a healthcare perspective that he deserves his uh, treatment, he deserves to be free to live his life and to do his, uh, to practice his culture and religion. Also, they organized um, trainings, like uh, medical students would do free workshops, medical trainings, offer basic services in their neighborhoods or in the neighborhood where their university is located, like uniting students with healthcare with neighborhood organizing. So that's the idea, is to go and keep things mixed together and mutually reinforcing each other. The transversal element is finding the themes that can actually bring these sectors together. So, for example, um, transversal feminism. Feminism is not a sector. Feminism is something that exists in all areas. We have Feminism in the workplace, right? If your boss is harassing you, you need feminism there. You need feminism in the home where maybe um, the wife or the mother is forced to take care of all of the domestic duties with no support from her partner. Uh, you need uh, feminism in healthcare, absolutely. So the idea is, is that it is intersectional, uh, but I think it's more than intersectional. And the power of feminism right now is that it can be that powerful uniting tool uh, to make people understand how their struggles are related, because we are much more powerful when we're fighting together and learning from each other than we are if we just stick to our one little pet cause or only work with what's in front of us instead of 
working from a systemic analysis. You also mentioned the power of empathy rather than employing sympathy. Why do you see more power in empathy when it comes to Chilean feminism than you do within sympathy? Well, I think sympathy comes from an idea of charity, of feeling bad for someone who's experiencing something that you are not experiencing. And it's true. Each of us does have a unique existence. There's no such thing, for example, as a universal experience of being a woman. But we can still find some common themes, like the theme of violence is one that I think women all over the world can find empathy with to different degrees, absolutely, but individual and structural violence is part of women's reality. Also, um, we can empathize around our relationship to power. Like, our, this, is, this feminist movement is not a movement of bosses and politicians. This is a movement of women who are, I would say, like, working class, Indigenous people who do not have access to institutional power to enact their demands. They have access to popular power. They have access to each other. And when we understand and can identify the threads that can build that empathy between us as individuals and as a movement, that gives us a starting place to start overcoming these systems that oppress us or exploit us. You mentioned sexual dissidents, a radical answer to the neoliberal politics of inclusion and diversity popularized by such groups as Sexual Dissidents University Collective. Uh, sexual dissidents d- denotes constant resistance to the prevailing sexual system, to its economic hege- hegemony and its post-colonial logic, and rejects the idea of subversive identities gay, lesbian, queer, trans, drag, etc., in favor of subversive analysis and action. The result is an inclusive, combative politics that cannot be easily co-opted or institutionalized, no matter how many individuals are peeled away by token reforms. How does sexual dissidence bring about a larger revolution than something only centered and on identity? And do you believe rejecting the idea of these subversive identities, gay, lesbian, queer, trans, drag, etc., would cause more participation by more people in a feminist movement or in activism today here in the States? Well, I think something like sexual dissidence does exist in the U.S. I would say it's like that uh, the queer liberation tendency the anti uh, assimilationist queer positioning, the idea that being a uh, rich gay real estate broker is a different experience materially than being like a poor trans uh, trans woman sex worker, and so I think that analysis is there in the U.S. and I think that here the strength is that it's not rooted in who you are, but your relationship to power. And that is a much more like potent area to organize from. Uh, the group that you mentioned, Kut, uh, they, um, they say that for them, sexual dissidence is important because any identity can be co-opted. Like being gay, for example, is not enough to ensure 
that you will kind of maintain this, um, I would say, counterposed perspective towards the systems of power. You can be assimilated. You could participate in those structures. So the idea is to have a way of acting that can't be assimilated. But that doesn't mean that people don't get to identify as gay or lesbian, uh, as trans, as non-binary. All of that exists here. And in a way, I would say that the integration of these communities into feminism here is more successful than it is in the U.S. because it's around an analysis of power. The same idea with um, feminism itself. Just being a woman doesn't make you a feminist. It's what you do. It's how you act. It's how you relate. And that doesn't mean that there aren't, for example, uh, TERFs here, trans-exclusive radical feminists. They exist. And there are also um, different types. I think we just lost her. Yeah, I'll call back. Damn it. Oh, I got a question from Helfer, and then that's it. Bree, one last question for you. And our final guest, our final question for each one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, and our audience might hate your response. American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile, Bree Busk has written the Roar magazine articles, Chile's feminists inspire a new era of social struggle, and Chile's feminist movement is here to stay, which are two parts of an ongoing series. Bree is writing on Chilean feminism. You can find out more. Uh, we can, Bree is a member of both Black Rose Anarchist Federation in the U.S. and Solidaridad in Chile. You can find out more about Black Rose at blackrosefed.org. One last question for you, and our question from hell for you is, you write, United under the banners of non-sexist education and an end to patriarchal violence, Santiago-based high school and university students mobilized on May 16th of last year in the largest feminist mobilization in Chilean history, initiated by the Chilean Student Federation. This march caught the world's eye with its flashy contingents of young women marching topless while wearing maroon balaclavas, a choice that was as much a demonstration of power as a celebration of bodily autonomy. Why topless? Why do you think that topless is a good strategy for a feminist mobilization? Well, I would say it's one strategy. Um, But, you know, I think uh, for the young women who are participating in the movement today, the idea of showing your body because you want to, not as a spectacle for, like, the sexual consumption of others, that you could just simply exist to be surrounded by your classmates, by your friends, and to feel the power of that, uh, those numbers and that protection. And that to say that your bodies have other purposes. Your bodies can be for, for the fight, you know, for the struggle, and not just for titillation or entertainment or for selling products. I think that uh, women who use that tactic, I think, want to rebrand their bodies in a way to take back how they're defined and put them in their own context. And in a way, I would say that more than attractive women who do that tactic are a little scary. And I think that's pretty cool. And I'm sure that was one of their goals. Yeah. And I'd really wish that that scare tactic, I think, because I think it would work. I think that scare tactic would work against fascists here in the United States. I think that feminism can defeat fascism, and I think that that kind of confrontational feminism 
will just make fascists melt away. I, I, at least I hope so. At least I hope so. Bree, I really appreciate you being on the show. When is the next uh, article in the series coming out? Um, I'm hoping in about a month. I was waiting for the big day to happen on March 8th, and now I am full of deep reflections. I'm hoping this next article will focus on some of the political conflicts within the movement, talking about the idea of race, of the difference between the city and the country, some of the big tensions that I've seen emerge that I think are going to come to the fore in uh, this next period over 2019. Well, we're really looking forward to it. And when it comes out, we'll definitely share it. And maybe we'll have you back on the show because I've really enjoyed this conversation. This is really fantastic. We only barely skimmed the surface of these two articles. Everybody who's listening right now should go to Aurora Magazine's website and find Bree Busk's work, or you can just go to our website, thisishell.com, where we have a direct link to her work there. And earlier on today's show, we had uh, the founder of Aurora Magazine on the show, and I totally didn't realize that until like, last <laughs> oh, <wow>. night. <laughs> exactly. You're listening to This Is Hell Radio. You just heard an interview with organizer Bree Busk from March of 2019, and next we're going to hear from Sophie Lewis from July of this year. This is hell. Carrying a baby, gestation, is very dangerous, even deadly, and more commonly deadly than you think. And we don't seem to be doing a damn thing about it. Maybe it's time for a more compassionate, compassionate way of going through childbirth, a way that can bring us all together closer than family ever has, here to help guide us through the revolutionary idea of full surrogacy and in possibly the best bio that I've ever read on our show, theorist, critic, water-based entity, writer, translator, and rootless cosmopolitan in exodus from academia. Sophie Lewis is author of Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family. And Sophie, that is the best bio I have ever read at anybody's website. So congratulations. Thank you, Chuck. Hi. Hi. Sophie is our first guest from... First guest during this year's Listener Appreciation Month, we are only featuring guests suggested by listeners back in June. Listener Melissa wrote, I'd like to suggest Sophie Lewis as a person to interview. They've just published a book called Full Surrogacy Now on Work in Capitalism, Family Abolition, Feminist Solidarity, etc. Take care, and I'm crossing my fingers to hear Sophie on your show soon. They're such a great person and creative academic. Melissa? Time to uncross your fingers. Sophie is a feminist committed to cyborg ecology and queer communism. You can find out more about her at lasofielle.org. And you can follow Sophie on Twitter at reproutopia, reprotopia, at reprotopia. All right, I got to ask you this question because I think this does, even though I think this is an underlying underlying current within your thinking, but also in your writing, and you mention it in your bio. What is cyborg ecology? Oh, well, um, I am interested in sort of, I'm a, I'm a stan for the early Donna Haraway, um, perhaps a bit less so the more kind of bioethical concerns um, that Haraway has turned to um, more recently. But the, the early sort of, deeply socialist, feminist, anti-racist stuff from the mid-80s, which incidentally is exactly when all the most regressive kind of surrogacy prohibitionist kind of feminism was also happening and being published. This stuff um, that, you know, that came out and really hit um, some socialist publications completely um, 
in the space, like the Cyborg Manifesto, it was completely ahead of its time and had, you know, and people had no idea what to make of it um, and in what sense it was feminist or socialist. Um, it, it's so, it's so, you know, ongoingly useful to me, I think. It's much misunderstood, um, which <laughs> I, I, I guess I can relate to now having written a book with a name like Full Surrogacy Now. I, I think I've had a taste of what it's like to have your your book completely misunderstood it's um as Haraway has had to kind of repeatedly clarify the idea of the cyborg is very much not a kind of blissed out techno bunny um terminator or kind of android type uh figuration it's that the idea of the cyborg is a way of describing the interconnect the interconnectedness of bodies um And those connections go across divisions like human, non-human, human-machine, and so on. The fact that we're completely composed of um, microorganisms, lots of kind of creepy crawlies with completely separate DNA. Um, The fact that we uh, changed fundamentally in history when we started cooking our food. You know, that's the kind of technology, quote-unquote, that... Um, the idea of the cyborg is inviting us to understand um, as kind of deeply part of ourselves. So we're, you know, it's it's a way of understanding um, being a, a woman, if you like, because that's where the focus of that text is, as as something sort of potentially quite hopeful and not settled. It's it's an anti-essentialist kind of uh, way of explaining women to themselves as border crossing entities with lines of flight. And so ecology, when you when you fuse that idea with ecology, you're trying to think about um, climate change, um, materiality, um, you know, uh, human nature relations, although probably the word nature is too kind of... <sighs> terrifyingly draped in scare quotes to do much with when you're a cyborg ecologist because there's nothing less natural than nature if you like um for for a you know for a marxist feminist anti-racist cyborg ecologist the whole the whole point of ecology is to is to really make visible what it is that we're doing when we call things natural and to you know to denaturalize that if you like. Um, so it's a way, so invite, you know, instead of environmentalism, where you have a very kind of fixed idea of what, um, you know, the wild is, uh, it's out there or, you know, nature is this, is this obvious thing that isn't part of you, doesn't spread its tentacles into your bedroom. Um, cyborg ecology is, is a, is a, is a much more relational approach to doing ecology where, um, you know, the ecological is not an antonym of the technical or the technological or the human. So it's more complicated in a way. It makes things more difficult. And it also means that you cease to be able to separate ecological struggle from um, basically everything else that anti-capitalists and communists want. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. and I want to get to the idea of natural and how it can be misunderstood, how it can be understood. But but before I get to that, I, as you were saying in your response, I can see how your work 
can be misunderstood because you are introducing a lot of new ideas. And that's when people's work is misunderstood, when they're introducing a whole bunch of new ideas to people that go counter to what the more mainstream and typical narrative is. You write, it is remarkable remarkable that there isn't more consistent support for research into alleviating the problem of pregnancy. What is the problem of pregnancy? And how do people react to you saying there is a problem with pregnancy because we always hear about the miracle of pregnancy and not the problem of pregnancy? Mm, Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, I I feel uh, almost like a kind of um, like a naive or something. I'm I'm just pointing out, you know, that um, thousands and thousands of people die all the time from doing this uh, thing that we for some reason, nevertheless, keep carrying on pretending is 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 completely fine. Not to say I don't think that there's a miracle, like a miraculous element, or that it, it you know that it's that it's a pleasurable thing for many people to do pregnancy and so on. I just I just kind of feel a little crazy that there's not more of a conversation about uh, the way that this this labor process really tears human anatomies apart from the inside. Um, and and because of the way we've framed it as kind of, you know, the the, the culmination of any lifetime, um, it it we've managed to kind of just you know gloss over the inconvenient fact that it's it's extremely dangerous and lethal. You know, in the U.S. alone, almost a thousand people die while doing childbirth each year, and another sixty five thousand, you know, quote unquote, nearly die. Um, and you know. Um, I yeah I I think that um what fascinates me about the subject um politically you know is 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 this kind of morbid um this little discussed way that there is something quite destructive going on in that labor of baby making and if you just hear me say that you know you might think that you know I don't I don't appreciate it or that I think people who do gestation are, are crazy and that's not that's not at all my position you know if you like I'm very um I'm I'm for people doing extreme sports and all kinds of strange kinky things you know <laughs> we're perverse and after um you know we've we've uh, overthrown capitalism I'm, I'm sure there will be even more wonderfully strange um and perverse things <laughs> that we will get up to but um uh and I respect gestation immensely um i think everybody you know should um but i think the fact that there is no option there are no options available to people who find themselves potentially put to work by a placenta there's no element of um automation currently available we, we're not in the world like marge piercy's women on the edge of time where you could maybe hand off your pregnancy to um a brooder, you know, some kind of ectogenetic um, machine full of slurry that the community has got running to sort of help, you know, alleviate the burden of nine months of kind of being, um, uh, you know, colonized and tapped and uh, having many of your functions, uh, glucose, blood, so on and so forth, um, kind of really uh, frozen and taken over by the cellular kind of cancer and I and that's a very loaded word but that's very objectively what scientists find when they look at placental and fetal cells in our species you know something something needs to to be kind of shaken up in this domain I think we should be thinking much more um, imaginatively 
um, and in a much more utopian way about what it would be like to have, um, you know, pregnancies that can be maybe paused, handed off to one another or or, or taken over perhaps by um, by something more literally technological um, than, you know, a human surrogate. But we can we can we can get. We can get to that, Jack. I'm, I'm probably overwhelming you. No, um, no, no, you're not. Uh, you know, one of the things you uh, write about is how uh, mammals whose placenta don't breach the walls of the w- womb in the way that they do with human beings can simply abort or reabsorb unwanted fetuses at any stage of pregnancy. We do have this idea of natural pregnancy, that the natural aspect of it is what should be done. And maybe we see that, be- we believe that because we see that in the animal kingdom and we see that with other mammals. How is it, why is it so much different, so much more different for human beings to go through gestation than other mammals? And do we have this idea that we should have this natural process because we think it's, we think we have the same kind of system as all other mammals when in fact we can't do this reabsorbing or self-aborting? Yeah, we're just very unlucky, honestly. Um, the evolutionary biologist Suzanne Sadadin is uh, unpopular, I think, in her domain because, you know, ideologically, a lot of scientists remain very kind of committed to, you know, the the desirability um, and naturalness of pregnancy. You know, naturalness becomes a synonym of desirable, but of course, we ha- we don't treat many things that occur, quote unquote, naturally as automatically, you know, a okay and desirable. You know, we don't say to people with congenital diseases or diabetes or you know, bad eyesight that that's just what nature intended. You know, um, the hemochorial placenta, which just happens to be what developed in our species, is just a real asshole. You know, it's a really unlucky. Uh, fluke that we landed ourselves, and there are a couple of other animals, not not necessarily the ones you would expect, that has this particular kind of, um, you know, placenta that really digests its way into your arteries. Um, so as you said, you know, if if I, if I was, um, uh, you know, a wolf or something, I might encounter a situation where. It doesn't make sense to continue with a pregnancy. There's a drought. There's some kind of, you know, hostile situation or or some kind of environmental change, and and you'd barely notice, you know, that that your system just ceases to to carry, you know, to carry the child or fetus because um, mama comes first on a biological level. Except in our species, it's not like that at all, and the last thing likely to stay alive. Uh, when things go south is, is ghoulishly enough, you know, the pregnancy, right? So um, that's, you know, that's something that really kind of stacks um, things against gestators, particularly in a context where, you know, on top of everything else, there's a, there's a massively well-funded networked um, lobby of, you know, of, of uh, so-called, you know, pro-life um, fanatics fetus fetishists who want to, you know, double down on that on that already kind of like deeply constrained um, kind of t- uh, terrain for the for pregnant people uh, by by enacting legislation that 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 gives personhood um, to um, the fetal part of a pregnancy, you know, the, the 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 participant in it that is not, you know, a human is not, in my view 
um, at all a person. I mean, it's not even in my view. A fetus is a participant in a pregnancy. It's a pretty aggressive participant. I think we need to be able to talk about it as a human thing, but in fact, it's it's a good idea to um, kill. <laughs> um, in particular scenarios, it's a very good thing to do that. Um, but uh, that's not something that Tucker Carlson um, particularly <laughs> agrees with, um, I'm afraid. Um, I, I told him I wouldn't go on his show, but then learned that he, he had um, aired a few seconds of me um, expressing my views about abortion on his show anyway, uh, which landed me with, you know, oh, a couple of million um, <laughs> um, instances of, of fan mail, as you can imagine, telling me to go and get dismembered and, you know. Well, that's, off- that's awesome that they're very pro-life about it then. Yeah, yeah, they're absolutely in favor of my flourishing, I can tell. In fact, <laughs> I, I think... Um, the, the, the paradoxical thing about the pro-life position is, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first person to have said this, but it's when you, when you begin to actually live, when lives begin to be lived, um, they're not pure anymore and they don't, they can't be, be an avatar for this politics. You know, it's, it's impure. As soon as you're not um, a fetus anymore and you're, you, you're living a life in particular, you're you're kind of contaminated and fallen, you know. So um, these are the people who are, you know, visibly extremely committed to um, the annihilation of lived life in particular on Earth. You know, they they love militarism, they love ecocide, you know, they love austerity, they love they love um, capitalist in, uh, exploitation in its most brutal forms. You know, um, but when it comes to um, you know, pre-human sort of floating entities uh, that they they can get extremely teary-eyed about about the sanctity of 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 that organism um, and its its right to not be kind of disentangled from its um, from its producer. You know, you write that um, the most widely known pregnancy dystopia of our times is Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale. And I think this is a great way in which you can you introduce a lot of your ideas about full surrogacy now. Uh, in the fictional <laughs> Gilead, drastic infertility has struck. A cult has staged a coup. Paramilitaries are controlling as, uh, women as chattel. Uh, the few fertile people remaining who are by definition women. Since the new government has taken uh, the view that baby making must be intensively husbanded, these handmaids, formerly American citizens, are being being brutally indoctrinated, disciplined, and forced into private gestational service for the property-owning couples of the new society. And you write that two excellent demands could actually readily be extrapolated from this storyline, namely the first two axioms of the reproductive justice, that's in capital letters, movement's credo, the right not to be pregnant and the right to parent one's children in a safe environment. It is regrettable that the progressive fans of The Handmaid's Tale have on the whole been inspired to shout mostly about the former while omitting to campaign around the latter. What is it about progressivism that leads to shouting about the right not to be pregnant yet ignoring the right to parent one's children in a safe environment? What does that tell you about progressivism when it comes to care for women in childbirth or people who are carrying a child in gestation? Or when it comes to feminism and reproductive rights in general, what does that say to you about progressivism? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, honestly, um, the whole formation um, that has taken place 
under the rubric of like the handmaid's tale, you know, under his eye, um, whatever, blessed be the fruit, um, noli titibas dades carborundorum. Um, it's a, it's, it's a, it's what I say in the section that you've just quoted from is, um, uh, it's a little bit, um, you know, provocative. Um, I, the, the, the whole, um, the, the, the fantasy there, you know, appears to be on its face that nothing could possibly be worse um, than Gilead, you know. But actually, it's a utopia, I want to say, because what, what, what these um, largely, and, and I say this, you know, with, with, with more respect than it might seem, really, I, although I have to say Margaret Atwood herself gets on my nerves in a big way, um, these Hillary Clinton supporting kind of uh, hashtag resistance handmade fans, they're actually, um, they're they're deeply drawn to the fantasy of a scenario where they could unapologetically, you know, inhabit the center of feminism again. You know, it's, there's something about the simplicity of the scenario where a totalitarian, totalitarian regime is kind of husbanding, husbanding everyone with a uterus. Um, in, uh, you know, basically it's slavery what is being represented. The, the Handmaid's Tale has long been recognized by critical race scholars as a de-raced slave narrative. Um, what you get to do uh, on, a, on a psychic level um, as a non-Black fan of The Handmaid's Tale, um, you know, is, is, is occupy that um, privileged position, if you like. I mean, I say privileged kind of, you know, ironically here um the utopianism um is that they fantasize and and i i think it's a little bit kinky again let's be real um about a tortured rape-based situation so simple in its logic so very very bad that class divisions between women would just instantly fall away in the face of the bare necessity of you know feminism trademark you know and my 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 kink on the other hand chuck is is a belief because I am also a utopian like them, that we can build a world in which no one at all ever will analogize 21st century cis heteropatriarchal racial capitalism to some kind of race-blind, phallocratic fascism scenario dreamed up by a bioconservative white feminist sci-fi writer in the (laughs) (laughs) mid-1980s. I'm not an ungrateful person. I recognize that the level of, you know, hashtag discourse um, about the Handmaid's Tale has diminished over the past two years. You know, in the wake of the 2017 Texas Capitol abortion protest, which, by the way, wasn't an original idea. It was literally born of a Hulu um, promo stunt at South by Southwest. Um, at you know, the, the cosplay used to be ubiqu- ubiquitous. Um, but and nowadays, despite the renewed assault on abortion across the U.S., which don't get me wrong, I think is you know obviously of paramount importance for the working class, um, it's quite possible for an entire week to go by in which no one says we are literally living in the Handmaid's Tale, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, and I am thankful for this. Yeah. Uh, but I think, <laughs> yeah, I think we can dream bigger, and we're still, alas, quite a long way from the world. 
You write. Um, you write that we must. You write that we must unlearn gestation and exceptionalism in our thinking about labor militancy. If entering into a situation of pregnancy as work were in and of itself tantamount to entering a state of slavery, where would this uh, leave the immense amount of thinking over the past century that has positioned social reproduction as work, work that is often alienated and waged, but market disciplined rather than enslaved? Our uterus is the wheel. Wages for housework said that keeps capitalism moving. How is the uterus the wheel that keeps capitalism going? And that might be my favorite question I've ever asked on my show. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, um, in the 1970s, Italian feminists exposed unpaid housework as non natural, um, and that, that is to say, as work, you know, and that included pregnancy, uh, not just child rearing. Although that element has really fallen away, um, even as um, that that school of thought, the wages for, or rather wages against housework, as it should, as it's more properly understood, um, you know, platform has become very, um, you know, well uh, well known, really, and used and referred to. So I am actually trying to pick up the almost throwaway, or, or for some reason much overlooked element of their of their initial manifesto that said um, every miscarriage is a workplace accident. Um, every every miscarriage, um, you know, and and this is this is a way of thinking about gestation as literally work indispensable to the capitalist economy. Um, you know that I want to link up with um, U.S. based black lesbian feminists and gay liberationists thought, um, who respectively theorized um, polymaternalism, the idea that a children, um, a ch- <laughs> that children have many mothers, right? Uh, and, or um, uh, children's liberation, uh, which is the idea that, you know, uh, which is very linked to, to, to um, uh, polymaternalism, that uh, children are by no means the property, you know, let alone the genetic copies of those whose genes they share. So, you know, my my book does, um, as you kind of indicated, try and do many things at once. I actually try to explode many kind of um, shibboleths of uh, orthodox Marxist thought at once. Um, and it's so easy to misunderstand me on on many of them. Um, you know, not I'm not, uh, you know, making a plea to understand gestation as work on the basis that that is moral praise, you know, quite the reverse. I'm doing this from an anti-work perspective. Um, but at the same time, full surrogacy now is not an accelerationism. Um, it's not an idea that, you know, were we to ramp up dynamics already present within capitalist society that we would get somewhere good. It's not that at all. It's an abolitionism where I'm talking about surrogacy as a in a metaphorical, critical, philosophical way. Um, uh, so surrogacy, in this sense, is, a, is an account of racial reproductive stratification. Um, the dystopian surrogacy that The Handmaid's Tale fans miss and, and don't want to acknowledge as having, you know, nothing to do with them, but having to do with, you know, enslaved people in the American plantation, that's, that's the kind of surrogacy that has always been there, cut out of the family picture of the white bourgeois private nuclear household, 
um, it's been it's the racialized labor that was always producing that family, um, even even as it was being invisibilized, so that that family could appear natural and given. Um, yeah, and secondly, you know, I. I <laughs> I do a lot of other moves after that where I refuse the separation between paid and unpaid gestational work. You know, my book says full surrogacy now, um, not just because, um, you know, I, 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 I see surrogacy as a, as a dystopian name for relations that already exist, but because um, I think surrogacy would be a very good idea were it to be realized in its, in its potential for recognizing that, you know, um, children are not property. We produce one another already, but we could learn to act like it. And that would be surrogacy as solidarity. Um, when we get beyond um, the capitalist kind of um, uh, division between, you know, reproductive and productive labor, which which sustains, you know, um, the gender order, we could perhaps think about how, you know, all, all gestators, um, surrogates, quote unquote, and, you know, mothers, quote unquote, um, are, you know, together the, the, you know, the producers of, of, of people, you know, and so I reject the assumption that in the present, what happens in surrogacy is fundamentally different from what happens in a, a naturalized household. And I want people to stop treating assisted reproductive technology um, on its face as though it were indeed completely different from what you are doing when you, you know, when you reproduce uh, your own family, you know, for free. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And you point out that uh, DNA is not self-reproducing. It makes nothing and organisms are not determined by it. You mentioned how feminist studies professor Donna Haraway extrapolates that there is never any reproduction of the individual in our species since Neither parent is continued in the child who is a randomly re reassembled genetic package, and thus for us literal reproduction is a contradiction in terms. So children aren't ours. We do not reproduce them. They are not some sort of pseudo-semi-reincarnation of us. But you also write some otherwise trans-affirming and infinitely more reasonable scholars have expressed the worry that dispensing with the term woman in the context of reproduction might constitute a form of erasure that is also incompatible with the principles of reproductive justice. You write how you are unpersuaded by this concern. It is not that I do not understand the momentous history of the mass repression and murder of the witches and midwives, the dispossession of their knowledge as a class history, quite the reverse. I know it is for them and thanks to them that I and other feminist cyborgs pursue the cause of gender abolition. Why is gender abolition important? What is gained, in your opinion, by gender abolition? Well, I mean, you know, much like um, full surrogacy, which is, you know, very much a, a, you know, a utopian name for a horizon in which, you know, we, we wouldn't um, relate to one another in a proprietarian way. Um, gender abolition, um, which, you know, it's not a label I am deeply attached to. People, people read my book as gender abolitionists, and I don't, I don't quibble with that particularly. Um, but I, you know, I, I see gender abolition as a very unknown quantity. I, 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 I don't know for sure whether it would feel like proliferation or, you know, I, I tend to sort of, I tend to think um, in a way much indebted to Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, 
where abolition means a kind of building um, rather than a, a destruction. Um, you know, she, she talks about prison abolition in that way. Um, and I, I'm using that same kernel of thought when I talk about the abolition of the family, which people get very scared about because they think it means that I'm, um, you know, coming for your babies, feminism against family, i.e. feminists hate kids, <laughs> which is not what it is at all. It's actually quite the reverse. Um, um, but um, when it comes to gender, I think things get a bit more complicated in my mind. I don't, I don't, uh, there are so many different ways of thinking about um, sex and gender if we are indeed um, really separating those material formations. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't actually talk much, you might have noticed, about gender in my book. And I think that, in a way, is my, um, is my contribution. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a way of showing that we can talk about um, gendered forms of work without addressing necessarily the gendering of that work. Um, there are many more things we can say. I sort of sidestep the gender question in gestation um, by simply, you know, not going there. I begin my book by saying it is a wonder we let fetuses inside us. And I don't apologize for that. I don't specify who it is who does gestating because it's an awful lot of us. It's an awful lot of people. And sometimes when I point out to people that they have finished an entire book that doesn't really ever use women and girls or, you know, females as a synonym for gestators, they don't really believe me, you know, but that, that really pleases me because it goes to show that it's actually you know, low key, not, you know, quite possible. And it's, it's not clunky. It doesn't, um, it doesn't make people kind of instantly notice that something odd is going on. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I just, I, I understand that some proponents of reproductive justice, um, Loretta Ross and Ricky Solinger wrote a great book recently where they kind of opted out of using precise language, um, uh, with regard to the people who do gestation, and they continued to say, uh, you know, women. Um, and I, you know, I, I just, I think what I've tried to do in my book is, I mean, I'd like to think it's it's a success where I show that it's not that much of an effort um, to be more, to, to bring more precision um, to the subject of, of pregnancy and who does it. Um, and in fact, in the medical domain, you know, whereas, tabloid newspapers will frequently kind of drum up some kind of false um, outrage about, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the, the PC um, trans feminazi, uh, you know, conspiracy that is now going to take away from us the right to say breastfeeding or mother. Um, in actuality, on the ground, medical practitioners have been just getting on quietly with trans-inclusive practices um, and gender, you know, affirming and respecting um, sorts of ways of actually giving care to bodies involved in the many, many different kind of uh, elements of, of, of procreation and, and assistance of procreation, um, you know, for quite some time. Um, yeah. So, you know, let's just like, <laughs> let's, hopefully my book can inspire people to just get on with it and not 
not necessarily spend all of their energy kind of, you know, tying themselves up in knots and and, and forcing their neurons into the question of, you know, um, what the gender of, of doing pregnancy is. It's a very open and ambivalent question, and it kind of always has been. And ancient Greece thought that doing pregnancy was a very warrior-like, masculine kind of enterprise. And indeed, you know, you can see why it might be, because they, you know, being getting pregnant kind of often makes people's voice drop and they get covered in hair, you know. Um, but, but, but the in the surrogacy industry, which, you know, commercially harnesses the power of human gestation. Um, I would say that there's something not very quote-unquote feminized going on at all um, economically. When we talk about industries that are subject to the quote-unquote feminization of labor, you know, commercial gestational surrogacy doesn't fit into that at all because you're looking at a very kind of stable, outsourced uh, uh, quantity of muscle, um, you know, and, and that's um <laughs> that you know that that's one element uh, that i think um you know helps us kind of open up new questions and explode preconceptions um about what is at stake when 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 we're thinking about surrogacy we've been speaking with sophie lewis she is author of full surrogacy now we want to thank listener melissa Mel, we want to thank you for suggesting Sophie because I've really enjoyed our conversation and your book was fascinating to me because, like I was saying earlier, it introduced a lot of new concepts to me, which I really appreciate. Sophie is a member of the Out of the Woods Collective and an editor at Blind Field, a journal of cultural inquiry. You can find out more about Blind Field at blindfieldjournal.com. Find out more about Sophie at lasophielle.org. Follow Sophie on Twitter at rep. Pro Utopia, Repro Utopia. One last question for you, Sophie. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, let's bring about the conditions of possibility for open source, fully collaborative gestation. Let's prefigure a way of manufacturing one another non-competitively. Let's hold one another hospitably explode notions of hereditary parentage and multiply real loving solidarities. Let us build a care commune based on comradeship, a world sustained by kith and kind more than by kin. Where pregnancy is concerned, let every pregnancy be for everyone. Let us overthrow, in short, the family. Can ending the family bring about more togetherness? Of course. It's it's the family that is making us so lonely, um, deprived, abused, and you know, um, uh, accepting of a fundamental scarcity that turns us into binary gendered subjects and uh, good workers for capitalist exploitation. Um, you know, I think people fear that um, when we're in this moment, you know, the main issue for communists at the moment is 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 perhaps. Um, you know, the, the so-called migrant crisis, which should really be called a border crisis because the violence involved is the border. When families are separated, babies are separated from the, the people they're traveling with across the border, you know, um, people think that that is family abolition. That is not family abolition. That's the opposite of family abolition. It's the fact that the family is such a brilliant mechanism for capitalist states to use in disciplining 
um, and, uh, and, and, you know, genocidally kind of regulating people's movement um, that, that is the root of the problem here. Of course, chosen families, real kind of caring relationships, um, queer families, if you like, are actually what have enabled marginalized and dispossessed people to survive, you know, throughout capitalist history and, that, and continue to do so. So in a paradoxical way, it is actually lowercase s families that are already and will be in the future involved in abolishing, you know, the capital F family, as it were. You know, um, I, I, I am absolutely not asking for a diminution of uh, love and caring relationships, but given that the private nuclear family, the icon of the, of the white private nuclear household, um, which has been sustained since its inception, by the by the dispossession and exclusion and exploitation of, of others, queer, racialized kind of people. Um, that uh, that family structure, that place, that location is where the vast majority of rape and abuse uh, takes place on this earth. Why would we try and defend it as anti-capitalists? We we know that there is. Um, you know, a, another family possible under the sun. And, you know, in a low-key way, we can glimpse this utopian sort of care commune already in, 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 in the cracks and gaps of, um, you know, of, of capitalist alienation. Sophie, this is a fantastic book. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. You can find out again more about Sophie at lasofiel.org. You can follow Sophie on Twitter at ReproUtopia. Again, Sophie Lewis has been our first guest during Listener Appreciation Month. She is author of Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family. Thank you so much for being on our show and introducing us to a lot of new concepts that I think our listeners are going to be digesting for a while. Thank you so much. You're listening to This Is Hell. That was Sophie Lewis talking with Chuck in July of this year. And finally, we're going to wrap up with a conversation with Zila Eisenstein from June of this year. This is hell. Abolitionist socialist feminism sounds like the most delicious, complimentary flavors of political thought. At least it sounds that way. Here to help us understand what abolitionist socialist feminism is, why it's needed more than ever, and how come nobody ever thought of it before. Activist, political scholar, and feminist writer Zila Eisenstein. Zila is Distinguished Scholar of Anti-Racist Feminist Political Theory at Ithaca College in New York. And you can find out more about Zila at zilaeisenstein.wordpress.com and follow Zila on Twitter at Z Eisenstein. You begin with what you call a few foundational queries. You ask why socialism, why socialism. You then reply, everyone deserves to live without a fear of hunger and homelessness and illness and unemployment and disability. The profit motive destroys humanity. A start towards socialism would be a universal livable wage and health care for all. Why do you believe socialism will end the fear of hunger, homelessness, illness, unemployment, disability? Why do you not fear the kind of socialism that those on the right fear, that is, a dismal, oppressive police state like those of the former Soviet Union and Soviet-occupied nations, or even the police state of China? Why do you see this? Why do you see hope for uh, that kind of socialism instead of the fear that those on the right see? Well, the hope that that I think of here and and sustains the commitment to socialism is a commitment to an idea that 
your 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 vision is for humanity and for a humanism of every human body. So my the notion of socialism is not to look backwards at what the mistakes are, but forwards as to why it is why it has the capacity to bring a different kind of world forward and its ideas and commitments uh and and the and the um positive struggles that have been part of it seems to me that we have no choice but to go in that direction when capitalism is just sucking uh the world in terms of any possibility of health happiness and um and fulfillment so my, you know i'm I, the the way that you ask the question puts me kind of in a defensive posture as to you know why why am i not worried that mistakes will be made and um i think we live in a moment where the present is what i fear and um and the future is what i am completely committed to so um i don't know how else to kind of open the possibility that when you just see the fact that we have millions of people um as refugees and homeless and uh, in cages even in our own country uh, just trying to find a way of living with a kind of sustenance and happiness um socialism in terms of articulated commitments see, seems to be the creative way to go because the commitment of socialism is to really nurture human beings and that's actually not the commitment of capitalism the the commitment of capitalism is to create profit and opportunities for those who succeed in the in quotes race of life but um you know Adam Smith's notion there is it's a race and we all know how many people win a race you know most people are losers within that very construction i just think we have a better possibility <laughs> with with socialism that's an amazing response ila that's really fantastic so uh you uh you write that you ask also why feminism and your answer is because neither sex nor gender should determine one's life choices and because misogyny and heteropatriarchy continually seek to control and regulate women's bodies we my, or my use of the term woman always is inclusive inclusive of transgender variant queer non-binary identities it is a specifically universal embrace and this is something i want to make sure that you expand on so our audience can understand this better how can feminism be universal how can feminism be about creating a more fair and just world for everybody not just hetero women well the 
the commitments. I mean, the the commit the privileging of hetero women comes from a construction of misogyny and one that uh, is privileging heterosexism because it's out of that construction that you get the um, the very gendered system that is already exclusionary and hierarchical. So the I mean what's what's wonderful about the moment that we live in is we're living at at a time where it is possible to imagine a, a bigger more inclusive notion of what what it what any human body means and particularly because patriarchy and misogyny are so rooted in the control of female bodies the the minute you start to open that to multiple possibilities you radically de- democratize what your feminism and what you, you know what your feminism can can mean now i also make or try to make clear in the book that there are many feminisms and um some feminisms uh, clearly are exclusive uh and have been along class lines along race lines that's why i'm arguing for a very particular kind of feminism and that is one that is both socialist and anti white supremacy so that that notion is is to say that also part of the book is that you we want to multiply always whatever the political construction is that we are thinking from and the the more multiple and complex it is the the more universal so i am asking for a kind of inversion of of what normally is understood that the idea that if you specify something you're being exclusionary so you know historically people would say i'm not a feminist i'm a humanist you know humanist is though that is the bigger more inclusive construction my point is the more specific you are in your starting point for thinking politically which means about the distribution of power and hierarchy the more specific you are the more democratic and inclusive and therefore universal you can be So I mean liberal uh, democracy uh, bourgeois democracy is premised on the idea that every everyone is an individual with human rights those are all universalized constructs right but what we've seen historically is that they have been you know the notion of who is an individual is enormously exclusionary so i'm asking for a flip you know be as specific as you can be and you will be more democratic more inclusive in in your thinking and um in a different book i wrote many years ago called the color of gender i argued that if you want a democratic society think of that individual as a black woman who is pregnant meet the needs of that body and nobody's excluded start with a white male body and you got exclusions at the get go so you know that's kind of an earlier construction of what this book is arguing 
which is it's it's just absolutely time to see the multiplicity that capitalism is never just capitalism and misogyny is never just misogyny and white supremacy never just that and why is it so difficult to keep the three of them together in order to really come to an honest construct of democracy that really excludes no one. So what do we miss in our understanding of feminism when we see feminism as just one monolithic feminism? Do we does that even does that lead to us having a misunderstanding, for instance, of why women may vote Republican, why women might vote for Donald Trump. What do we miss in our understanding of feminism when we see it only as one monolithic feminism? Well, you, you know, you just aren't seeing the complexity of um, of political variety to begin with, right? So, I mean, just to the, you know, to the extent that you have even multiple meanings of gender, you're going to need multiple meanings of, of feminism. But the, politically, again, historically in this country in, or in Western uh, societies, the feminism always was made equivalent to mainstream feminism, which meant liberal feminism, which meant bourgeois or capitalist feminism. So then feminism, what does it mean? It means opportunity for women in within the class structure but it also the the notion here of opportunity or equality women's equality um what is women's uh, women's equality with whom and what so i mean which man do you want to be equivalent with you know uh, an incarcerated uh, person of color um a rich black person um a middle class white man i mean what so what does that mean so all i'm trying to say here to your question is that in order to really think through um we you know what 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 do we not see when we just have a singular notion of feminism the singular notion is usually the notion of feminism that supports the society already in place so um the you know my my meaning here is that when um the to think that Hillary Clinton represents uh, feminism and her notion of breaking the glass ceiling. You know, there are many of us more socialist radical feminists who say, forget the glass ceiling, let's get us out of the basement. Or what many of us are saying is, we need a feminism for the 99%, not for the 1%. So again, it's who are you looking at? Which women are you speaking about? You know, what is their race? What is their class? What is their uh, sexual preference? You know, the the idea here that, again, um, if you're not trying to homogenize women, which is necessary in order to enforce a, the political coding of uh, of a particular construction of gender. 
You write, feminism must create access and freedom for all of our sexual and reproductive bodies. Reform, as in women's rights, is still threaded and structured through racist heteropatriarchy. So in the spirit of writer Mabe Segrist, queer all this as well. What happens to society when our racist heteropatriarchy, and you will not be surprised to know that my... Macintosh Word Program does not recognize that as part of its vocabulary. What happens to society when our racist heteropatriarchy is replaced by what Segrist calls queer all that as well? Should those who support the racist heteropatriarchy fear queering all this as well? Or does racist heteropatriarchy and queerness not operate in the same way that leads to a kind of supremacy and privilege for one group? Oh, yeah, no. I mean, the whole idea here, to, I mean, when you say queer it, you know, that, that really means open it, change it for the uh, broad expression of any and all sexual preferences. So what's to fear there? There's nothing to fear. You know? Yeah. I mean, really? Yeah. That, <laughs> there's nothing to fear. I mean, again, of course, we live in a, in a world right now where fear is kind of one of the, the major political um, centers for uh, Trumpism, and it is a fear of uh, uh, losing power, white uh, privilege, losing privilege of misogyny, um, and losing privilege as part of the 1%. So um, is, is there to fear for those who have accrued unfair power and privilege? Um, yeah, unless you understand that it's unfair, and then you have nothing to fear either. <laughs> then let's make a more just society. Is there a connection between, I was just thinking about this while you were replying, is there a connection yeah. be, between fear and what we see as more and more implementation of shame to try to get people to change their political views or their actions? Is there some link between the fact that we, and if you disagree with me, you can, I don't, that's fine, yeah. uh, that, that we're seeing yeah. a link, in, that we're seeing a rise in both fear and shame at the same time? Well, so what? What? What do you? Who? Who shame are you talking about? Just in general, when uh, trying to shame people into changing their behavior. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, again, I mean, um, shaming those in power, or just shaming anyone? Shaming those in power, I would say. Yeah. So, well, you know, you can't really shame people in power. (laughs) They have the power, (laughs) so you can't shame them. They don't give a shit. You know. So, I mean, that's really the ugliness of power, right? They don't have to care. Their arrogance really doesn't even allow them to be shamed. You you know, really? Trump, you think he's ever shamed? I don't think so. Or McConnell? I mean, you know, given the hearings yesterday, I would have just gone and shot myself, no? So, (laughs) you know, I mean, really, these guys, they, they, um, they believe in their power, and they fight for their power. And I think that the the people that I'm concerned about are people who do live in fear, but live in fear 
either people who do not have the power they need so that they are really in danger in our country right now. And there are people who live in fear and are in danger that there is no reason for them to have to live that way. And then there are those who have been mobilized by the Trump administration um, to be fearful of any kind of change because they already feel so tenuous in their lives. So I feel bad for them that fear is so much a part of their life because their lives are difficult. And then out of fear, they come to trust and believe um, in people who have no concern for them. But um, but the issue... Go ahead. Go go ahead. ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, you also ask why abolitionism, and you reply, chattel slavery. And by the way, I just want to go back to one thing you said. The the idea that people who are in power cannot be shamed, I think, is something that activists should keep in mind, because I have seen far too much in the last several months, last couple of years, uh, activists trying to use shame as a weapon to unseat those who are in power. And it doesn't seem to work. And obviously, it doesn't work because of the logical construction that you just gave it. You ask why abolitionism and you and you reply, chattel slavery has only been reformed and personhood and civil and human rights remain unfulfilled. What do you mean by chattel sl- slavery only being reformed. Mm. Well, I mean, really what we saw in, I mean, did you hear the um, Tahisi Coates yesterday speaking on reparations by any chance? Yes, I heard a bit of it. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, basically, you know, of course, what he was saying and what many people who have uh, fought on the whole issue of reparations is that chattel slavery, I mean, the legal construction of ownership of of um, enslaved people that no longer exists as a legal construction, but it still exists as an economic construction and a social construction and a political construction. If we look at the carceral system today, if we look at the uh, housing uh, inequities and the the uh, disparate difference um, that exists. particularly in terms of economic inequality along color lines. So um, the the argument that I was trying to make, and I mean, I didn't used to believe this quite as strongly as I do now. I mean, I always believed it a little bit, that reform, you know, reform was possible but never sufficient. And now, I mean, in the last decade, I've really started to wonder if many of the reforms that get put in place or don't get put in place just keep um, progressive people of whatever political bent um, they identify with just busy working to improve certain conditions, but that it is um, not possible to get at the root of the construction of power um, through reform. So, in other words, it is time to abolish white supremacy, not just reform it. The the, the abolitionism um, of, of of 
chattel slavery was a reforming of racism and white supremacy, but chattel slavery ended and white supremacy has continued, and I think you would probably agree with that, right? <laughs> just the form of it is, is different. And I shouldn't say just, I mean, because there, you know, the, the horrificness of chattel slavery and the way that it, um, you know, any, any kind of change, uh, uh, limiting that, changing it, reforming it, I never want to make light of it, but its insufficiency is huge. I do think that we, I mean, part of the reason I wrote this particular book, which really just comes out of, you know, many decades worth of writing and activism, was really the what felt like a unique possibility that we were at such a exposed moment of the the multiple systems of oppression and the inadequacy of picking at them that if we could come together, meaning the we here, the big we, the we of all different progressive groups. I mean, I don't think you have to be an abolitionist, socialist, feminist for me to work with you to really fight against this administration, particularly for 2020, and then make a revolution. <laughs> so my, I, the part of the book is really to, to say that there are new possibilities that I don't think have existed before because we may be living in a moment of what I term in the book taking the idea from physicists that we live in a moment of singularity where all of the changes that have been happening have come, that we are actually inhabiting a moment where all of those changes are at such a critical point of crisis um, that nothing before really makes any sense to us. You write that we have a Klan president of sorts who is also a sexual predator as well as a capitalist apologist. What is happening with this new chaotic exposure? Some might say that fascism has become completely transparent. Is that a good thing? Did Trump making fascism transparent and easy for us all to see the best thing Trump has done as president? Or is it the worst thing he's done as president? Is he potentially causing fascism? Well, you know, I mean, I love the question, and I don't have the answer. All I'm going to say is I want to make it that it is, it is the gift we have been given to actually so, so strongly and vociferously stand against what is happening. So I don't think the, the answer is not in at all. That's, that's really what this book is about. You know, I mean, um, I think you've read enough of it to, to know I have as many questions in the book as I have answers. I actually think to, to, to find out what the questions are, uh, just like you were asking, that that's really what the political imagination that we need is, to not, to not think that we know exactly 
um, where we are going, but we know that we are going forward. And I, I do think that um, that just a whole series of of events, everything from um, the Me Too movement um, to the uh, the unbelievable attack against abortion rights, the I think a kind of recognition by most people that sexual violence, sexual predation, um, that it is at the core of our society and world, whether it's war rape, whether it is uh, sexual harassment on the job. I mean, the other major contribution to political thinking that I'm trying to share in the book is to say that sexual violation is at the core of politics and that it forms a kind of glue for capitalism and that the the unwillingness to recognize the politics of sexual violence will, um, if we don't recognize it, we definitely will not be able to make Trump sorry. If you, I'm using that as a metaphor. Right. You also ask many yeah. questions of the left inquiring, why am I still forced to be making this case oh, after yeah. all the years <laughs> of anti-racist, anti-misogynist critiques of capitalist, racist, heteropatriarchy? Why is this still the question? Why haven't progressive thinkers and activists of all stripes changed more? Why does the left fail to recognize that the uh, personal is political, that there is a politics to sex, that sexualized racism is foundational for class? To you, what explains the left's inability or unwillingness to change or to challenge racial racist misogyny? And I know that there are more options of the, than just the two I'm going to offer. But which do you think it is more, an unwillingness to challenge racist misogyny or the left simply isn't able, doesn't have the strategies, doesn't know how to challenge racist misogyny? Well, I think maybe it's, you know, a bit of both. Also, I don't want to beat up on the left here. I mean, the, you know, the the point is is that this particular um recognition of the coherence here of of uh, racist misogyny and the fact that you can't separate race racism from misogyny. You just can't, but everybody does. So, I mean, even when people talk about slavery, they talk about it as a racist system, but it's rooted. I mean, the very core of slavery, chattel slavery, was in the rape of enslaved black women. You know, it was a sexual and economic system. So, the, you know, the, the, why, why is that? You know, why is it that people right now, today, were saying that Bernie Sanders is the absolute answer because capitalism is the problem? Well, I do think capitalism is part of the problem. You also, yeah. you also write that I'm a white woman who benefits from a structural system of white supremacy and privilege, but also suffers its misogynist roots and roots. How far can recognizing white privilege by whites undermine white supremacy? Is white supremacy's future more than anybody in white people's hands? Well, I think that um, 
it's a structural system that doesn't, you can't be reduced to individual anything, white people or not. But is it true that white people um, and white women in terms of the election of, of Trump, that disproportionate numbers of, of white women voted for Trump? Um, yeah. So, I mean, pe- when people say, how is that possible? He's such a misogynist. How could they vote for him? Well, you would have to understand that white privilege is also part of what? Misogyny. So, I mean, they were voting as much for the, whatever level of privilege or positioning they have. Um, many of those white women suffer misogyny all the time. Um but they they don't suffer their whiteness, right? right? So I mean the I think it's I mean I also don't in any way want to um, speak about this as though I think it is easily unwrapped. I mean I think it works so brilliantly to protect the system because it is wrapped on all different levels. But one of the things I was doing today was. Um, finishing up a letter for white women to sign um, as a statement standing against the silent privileging that any white person benefits from in our society um, as a result of um, the what initiated the letter that uh, that uh, you know that we're actually going to publish in the next couple of days is the um, when when they see us. Have you watched the Ava DuVernay series no. about the um, Central Park Five? Uh, no, I haven't, but I'm aware of it. Yeah. Okay. So, but it's two white women as prosecutors who are really exposed as just being enormously um significant in the just incredible misjustice of the moment and um as as a white woman it just seemed to me that again the 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 ex, the silencing and exposure of what happened to five innocent black boys because of a rape of a white woman um, and the ease which with racism was deployed um, the, the the just the complications of that kind of existence in our society on a daily basis um, you know, we see it in all different kinds of forms. So, I mean, what I was just trying to say, though, is that in this particular moment, with a uh, an openly racist president, it just seems to me that all white people have more responsibility to speak against the system of white supremacy, no matter what that means. You write that the midterms were all about Trump in 2018. The 2018 election became a referendum that demanded a win for the Democrats, no matter how many differences one had with the Dems, no matter how much wondered if getting out the vote was enough or could work. Most people who were part of the resistance to Trump had little choice. But was it enough? In 2020, is the strategy of 
anybody but Trump enough? And does anybody but Trump lead to selecting who you believe is most electable and is who you believe is most electable the best way to select who you will support? So is that's why I'm, con- I'm concerned about any time anybody has the strategy of in 2004 with John Kerry, anybody but Bush. Is anybody but Trump enough? No, no. I mean, I, it's it's not enough. Um, although it's it's enough on the day of the election, but right now, now it needs to be somebody who has a a a um, equally radical progressive set of policies. That's that's who I do believe um, can win against Trump. But, I mean, somebody like a Biden, Trump will win. And that's pretty frightening. And I keep trying to tell everybody I know who's supporting Joe Biden that that's a very frightening choice to make. Uh, You write maybe some of the new radical women of color among the Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ayanna Presley will initiate revolutionary reforms like abolishing the Electoral College along with the present representational structure of the Senate. Both are rooted in... The needs of chattel slavery. How are the Electoral College and Senate rooted in chattel slavery? And does that make the Electoral College and the Senate foundational cornerstones for white supremacy and institutional racism in the United States? Are the Electoral College and the Senate clear and obvious and open forms of institutional racism, in your opinion? Yeah, they are. I mean, I, you know, I'm a political scientist. I've taught the electoral, I tried to teach the electoral college, you know, and, um, for, you know, for years that I, you know, I just wish I had the clarity that I have now to, I mean, it, it was, it was just the, it, it was the, the give to Southern states, the electoral college to make up for the fact that they were less populated, et cetera. It was to give them equal power. It was the slave states who were demanding that. That's what the Electoral College were left with that. We are, you know, to talk about the, the, you know, history being present. You know, the history here is not really history. It's the present as well. So the Electoral College, all the gerrymandering, all of this is, it is constructed in such a way that makes it very difficult to, um, be able to to move forward, you know, in a in a a really um, effective political with a an effective political strategy. Um, but the you know the the issue here of having the popular vote. I mean, Trump didn't win the popular vote. He 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 you know he constructed his win with the electoral college. So, of course, anybody is able to to try to do that. But my point is, um, if we really, you know, reparations, you know, right along with reparations, you need to get rid of the Electoral College and you really need a, a, a new under, you know, a new construction as well, even a, a, about the relationship of the government structure, Senate, House of Representatives, etc. It's all rooted in the history of slavery, chattel slavery. 
It's not gone. You make this amazing point. You write, nevertheless, educated suburban women appear to have moved towards the Democrats in many of the 2018 midterm elections. Educated in suburban as a description of women is shorthand for middle and upper middle class white women. So maybe it is possible that class and gender will combine in this particular scenario to create a vote against Trump and inadvertently a vote against racism in 2020. Why do you say inadvertently? Do you believe women who do enjoy their white privilege, who do, uh, they profit, they benefit from white uh, supremacy, are opposing Trump? Is hating Trump more powerful than even defending your white privilege and embracing your white supremacy? Well, I mean, again, I you know, I just don't think that, that when... When we have multiple identities and multiple, um, you know, kind of uh, overlaps with different interests, um, I don't, I don't think that they always are separable and 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 able to, you know, clarify exactly which is the dominant force at any particular moment. But I do, I do think that the. Um, more and more because of the exposure right now uh, around uh, the issues of sexual violence, the whole question about reproductive rights. I mean, I do think that um, women of all colors have different um, capacity to understand their interests, even when they will be somewhat conflictual internally. So I, I mean, I am very hopeful that the different political struggles that are going on right now, and and you know all different kinds of feminist um, activism that is going on right now, that that will mean that uh, Trump will not be elected again. But there's just so the forces um, protecting him and supporting him are enormous. We have been speaking with activist, political scholar and feminist writer Zila Eisenstein. She is author of Abolitionist Socialist Feminism, Radicalizing the Next Revolution. As Zila was saying, and as I hope I was pointing out throughout the interview, it's an amazing exploration of just thinking about yourself, thinking about the way where you are positioned in the world. It's great because, as Zila points out, it's the power of doubt and the power of not knowing necessarily what direction the revolution is going to go. And Zila is Distinguished Scholar of Anti-Racist Feminist Political Theory at Ithaca College in New York. You can find out more about her at zilaeisenstein.wordpress.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Z Eisenstein. Zila, for all of our guests, we our final question is always what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer or our audience might hate your response. You advocate listening to and thinking with women of color very carefully. If I do not feel unsettled, I am not listening. If I am not destabilized about my place in the scheme of things, I'm not doing the work. Never think that color does not matter. Never be afraid or believe that you cannot stand against injustice. Absolutely do not remain silent because you are frightened to make a mistake. Risk everything and the support you need comes forth. 
Is the goal then for all white people to challenge their own power, to have a revolution, to overthrow their own white privilege and supremacy? Is the reason white supremacy and privilege are so intact that it means white people voluntarily giving up their their power and their advantages? Well, I don't think usually power is given up voluntarily. That's why revolutions are needed. (laughs) So, um, I mean, I I used to argue in my classroom that if you're ever given something, know that what you just got wasn't power, that it always entails a struggle. But what I am asking for is... um, for uh, for white people to become participant in a revolutionary struggle, um, in and that their their location afterwards will be different, and that the whole panoply of what uh, what humanity feels like, and and what decency feels like, and what justice feels like will be different, but you can't be scared that you might not like it. <laughs> Zila, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. This is a fascinating book, and anybody who is listening to the show right now, you should pick up Zila Eisenstein's new book. It really is fascinating. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. We are back with a new show next week, recording it on Wednesday and Thursday nights, uh, live streaming that for backers on Patreon and playing our own regular radio slot on Saturday. Oh, uh, go see Chuck with Michael Brooks next Saturday, the 24th at Lincoln Hall. Uh, I believe there's tickets still available to that. It's going to be fun. Next Saturday shows going to be real good. I got it uh, 75% booked. Okay, thanks for listening. See you on the radio. Bye. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>